Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. No song today because I... (laughs) I'm kind of, well, part of me is kind of worried about the future copyright violation notices, but also this this interview is already fucking two hours, you know, at least. I think it's more than that. So it's not really, don't have time to fuck around, play any any cute little songs. But uh, I, I do want to say this is probably one of my favorite interviews and conversations that I've had, if not the most uh, favorite conversation I've had so far. I'm totally excited about this. Uh, it's an interview with Bruce Baldwin, which is, I mean, this guy, he could be, you know, he, for full entitlement, he could be a total prick. You know, he's got, he could be totally arrogant and egotistical. He knows so much. He's a fucking brilliant mind and he's, you know, done so much uh, for botany, you know, especially he his specialty, of course, he's a synanthrologist. He's a, someone who studies Asteraceae, the sunflower family, which of course I fucking love. You hear me ranting about it all the time. But he's also done a ton of work uh, for you know molecular phylogenetics and just uh, I mean he's a a brilliant geneticist. He knows how to I don't know. We get into it. You'll (laughs) I'm just gonna fuck it up if I talk about it. But he's done a lot of really cool work figuring out evolutionary relationships by looking at genetic barcodes. So to paraphrase. So anyway. Um, but he's not, he's not, he's not a dick. He's like the most kind, uh, gentle person I've, I've probably ever met in the world of botany. Just extremely brilliant, extremely, extremely kind, extremely, uh, outgoing with his, you know, encouragement and support of people who care about plants. And so, uh, I'm super excited to bring you, to bring you this, uh, this conversation. Forgive me. I've, I've still got this weird fucking respiratory illness that I had a month ago. I've had two COVID tests. It's not coronavirus. I almost kind of wish it was because I'm fucking, I'm about to check out right now. But, uh, so my, you know, you can tell I've got some congestion, some mild chest congestion. I'm coughing and shit, but, uh, I tried to hold the mic away from my phone while I cough. So it's not uh, as loud and obnoxious. But anyway, Bruce does most of the talking and, and thank God, because he's got a lot to say. We cover a lot of topics. Uh, we cover, you know, the evolution of the sunflower family where it originated, South America. We cover the Barnadizioid sunflowers, which are like the fucking dinosaur sunflowers, the really weird basal branch, early diverging branch of the family. We cover chicories. We cover thistles, two different subfamilies right there. We cover the Helianthae alliance. We call it, we cover secondary pollen presentation, of course, which I should have listed it. I should have mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, but it comes later. And uh, it's just a really cool conversation but if you're not you know (laughs) if you're bored by sunflowers you might want to skip this one so uh 
anyway without dragging this on too long i'll just let you have at it uh here's a you know two hours and 15 minutes uh with bruce baldwin who's you know written again he's written the the asteraceae section of the flora for the jepson manual um he's he's written a ton of papers he's i mean the dude has just done so much work he's uh I don't know. It's he's got like a fucking lengthy resume of uh of in a in a long list of uh you know achievements behind him. So uh anyway, here you go. Here's Bruce Baldwin. Hey Joe, you there? Yeah, hey. Is that coming through? Yeah, I hear you fine. I'm on my uh, AirPods which I just got the other day. Uh, there's a dog barking outside, so I figured I'd better put those on to try to mask that out. Okay, yeah, it's it sounds good. It sounds good on your end. So, oh great. So, so uh, anyway, man, I want to thank you for taking the time, you know, to talk to me. I've been looking forward to this all week. So, oh good. I hope it's not disappointing. No, <laughs> <laughs> no man. Just ninety minutes of of talking straight composites. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So I guess uh, to start off with, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, let everyone know who you are. I mean, you're, I kind of view you as the authority, at least the person that go, my go-to person for questions involving the sunflower family, Asteraceae. But I mean, you've also done a ton of work uh, with gene sequencing and ITS and, you know, revising phylogenies breaking that down uh, your work your his the history of your work with that sure yeah so um yeah i am really interested in the sunflower family and i i got into botany mainly through floristics um working on flora out in the mojave desert when i was an undergrad and got really hooked on the desert flora and california desert that is mojave especially and uh yeah, from there I ended up working on um, composites in the tarweed subtribe, you know, that includes the silver swords and the and the California tarweeds primarily, and kind of branched out from there. But at the time, it wasn't clear that the silver swords in Hawaii, which are the spectacular adaptive radiation, uh, what their relationships were, you know, it was a little fuzzy and. There'd been a lot of work on that from Sherwin Carlquist, the famous island biologist and plant anatomist. And I thought he'd made a really convincing case that tarweeds, California tarweeds gave rise to these silver swords, but it, uh, it was something that didn't convince everyone. And so I got into molecular phylogenetics at that point. You know, that time, that was actually before a polymerase chain reaction was invented. So we had to do everything indirectly by um, trying to map uh, genomes using restriction sites, which cut the DNA into fragments of specific recognition sites. And so, you know, it was a pretty convoluted process and super labor intensive. Um, but that provided really good evidence that those silver swords are, uh, are a natural group that's nested within the California tarweeds. So they really are just like displaced California tarweeds closely related to the media lineage in California relatives. So yeah, from there, uh, yeah, I went ahead and was a professor at Duke for a couple of years in the botany department when that used to exist. 
and then came back to California to be the curator of the Jepson Herbarium, which focuses on the California flora and um, became the editor of the Jepson Flora Project, the convening editor, which produced a second edition of the Jepson Manual and a manual of the flora of the California deserts. And we keep this Jepson e-flora going online, a living flora to the flora of California to try to keep uh, you know all of the new discoveries front and center so people can identify these plants when they find them in the field. It's really important for conservation and, and for scientific studies um, outside conservation. So yeah, my general interest in, you know, the comps, the sunflower family are the most diverse family in the California flora. And so I guess they thought it made sense to hire me at Berkeley to curate the herbarium um, after hearing about my work on California composites. And my work has tended to stay focused on California composite groups that, you know, are not so well represented outside of the California flora, are not less uh, focused on, but, but there's a lot going on in California and it keeps me busy. So to get, but to break it down, the, the stuff between the tar weaves and the, the silver swords. I mean, I remember when I first read about that, I think I, I first read about that in the field museum in Chicago, they had a little, a little display on it, but the tar weeds are these really small, most of them are annuals, correct? That's right. Yeah, the vast majority. Right. So they're like these, these, these small, really sticky and resinous uh, little plants that you know, you'll see growing on the, they're kind, they kind of are, I think of them as like a native weed. Like you just, they're really easy to write off if you're not a plant person and just ignore of course, you touch them and they're super sticky and they smell. I think they smell good. But the idea is, you know, and, and within the composite family, they've got a very distinct morphology in terms of the flower head. They've got those akeens that, you know, the seeds that, what is it, the, only the outer, is it only the outer ring is fertile? It, the marginal fluids? That's true in some of them, yeah, for sure. And in some of the tar weeds, only the, um, only the ray fruits are only the ray ovaries set fruit and the pistol or the uh, disc flowers are strictly staminate in function, but um, it depends on the genus or part of the genus. Like in media, it varies, but, but yeah, the rafe, the rafe flowers always set fruit in, in tar weeds. So that you're at least going to find fruit there. Sometimes you'll find fruit set in the disc flowers as well. Just depends on the species. So the idea is, though, that one of these made it over to the Hawaiian Islands, probably in the plumage of a bird, what, five, six million years ago? That's exactly and then, right, yeah. And then it just, it evolved and ended up evolving into the the, tar, the silver swords, which look, I mean, from outward appearances, you know, first initial appearances, they look nothing like the tarweeds, just completely, you know, anomalous. That's right, yeah. And in fact... Uh... One of the most famous students of the tar weeds, um, David Keck, whose name kind of resonates in California and Western North American botany circles. He was part of the famous Claus and Keck and Heise research team at the Carnegie Institution of Washington. And he basically knew the tar weeds in California as well as anybody alive at the time and arguably as well as anybody since. And, and yet uh, he, he monographed 
Argyrosiphium, the silver sword genus, the true silver swords and green swords, the big rosette plants. Um, but he, um, and he recognized actually the relationship between those and the members of Dabaudia and Wilksia, the two other genera. So he made that connection that there was this adaptive radiation in Hawaii involving those three genera. But he didn't, well, he totally disavowed any relationship between the California tarweeds and the Hawaiian silver swords, even though that idea actually goes all the way back to. Asa Gray himself, back in the mid 1800s, he proposed that um, Argyrosiphium was part of the Medione based on the head architecture, you know, the flowering head architecture. But um, Keck, in part, dismissed the whole idea based on the incredible um, oceanic barrier between California and Hawaiian Islands. He just felt like that was way too far for a mere tarweed to. Yeah. Uh, be able to disperse across that distance. And that was, in, you know, in fairness to him, at that time, biogeographers were really adverse to this, to the whole notion of long distance dispersal. Um, they were always looking for land bridges to connect islands out in the Pacific, you know, ancient land bridges, and came up with all kinds of outlandish hypotheses to try to figure out ways that the plants didn't have to disperse across oceanic um, barriers. And uh, he, he kind of echoed that sentiment. So Sherwin Carlquist, who I mentioned, did the anatomical work on the tar weeds and uh, was also an island biologist. He kind of picked up where people like Guppy had let off uh, and, uh, and really um, you know, pointed out that birds are actually a pretty nice vector for getting composites and other flowering plants around in the Pacific and elsewhere. So. Yeah, we we think that he really hit the nail on the head. It's it's nuts. I mean, as as far as the long distance dispersal thing goes, I mean, I just learned there's a species of uh, Azarella, you know, that really weird member of the carrot family that forms those those huge, you know, Dr. Seuss looking clumps of of green mats, you know, in the Andes at like uh -huh. fourteen thousand. I learned there's one there's one in New Zealand. There's one off a small island off the coast of Australia. I forget the name of the island it begins with an M. But, uh, you know, and of course the seeds on those just look like typical, I guess they would be, what is it, maricarps or whatever the AP, whatever the APACA type fruit is. I mean, I've seen them, you know, on Habitat in the Andes. Okay. I collected some seed. I actually, I mailed it to Denver Botanic Garden. I don't know if they ever had any luck growing it, but I figured they would be the most, the most likely candidate to succeed with, with growing Azarella Compacta. But, yeah, you know, there's one, I, when I learned there was one in New Zealand that blew my mind. I mean, it's just kind of all the movements of of these seeds that were being done by birds. I mean, I'm mostly birds, I assume. Many of them yeah. probably now, you know, millions of years ago. It's, oh, yeah. it's crazy. About. You know, I mean, this this in the case of tarweeds, this one tiny little seed makes it over to the Hawaiian Islands and, and you know, radiates into this other plant that's six or seven feet tall and a blue spike that looks nothing like the tarweed that it, you know, the lineage that it evolved from. Yeah, you know, that process of adaptive radiation is just, has amazing potential when ecological release occurs. I mean, we think that there's good evidence for it, even from experimental studies. You know, I've grown tarweeds in the growth chamber under controlled conditions where 
they're not experiencing any competition. Everything's just the way they like it. And just taking field collected seed of groups like Leia, you know, it's a strictly annual group of tar weeds, the tidy tips and relatives. And in the course of growing those things out, at one point I even found a uh, an individual that had rhizomes, you know, so a perennial Leia, which has never been seen in the wild before. But, um, you know, that's the variation that existed within the natural population, but it wasn't, it wasn't possible for it to express uh, given the constraints that are imposed by the ecological circumstances those things find themselves in, in the populations they occur in. So, you know, even the, Wait, where, where, did you, where did you find a perennial lega? That's crazy. Well, it, was just a, it was just a seed, you know, I collected from the wild and I grew it up and it uh, produced rhizomes. I only had one plant like that, but it, we see a lot of variation when you grow things in the greenhouse that you'd never see in the field. I mean, from field collecting what seed. Well, I think that it's just this process of, of um, you know, basically um, selection is constraining the, um, the amount of, you know, the, the individuals that survive. So some, only some fraction of those individuals that, that uh, I mean, that the, the seed that's produced actually has the potential to make it in the environment, but, right. but when you, you know you when you relax the conditions, or you make conditions that are you encounter conditions that are different than the normal conditions, but are still conducive to survival. Suddenly, some of those seedlings survive that you'd never see reach adulthood otherwise, and they can have pretty wacky characteristics. So yeah, it's a phenomenon. Okay ecological release or competitive release that that results in a lot of different phenotypes being expressed in nature or in under any conditions in artificial conditions if you run an experiment that normally you know you just wouldn't see so you know that that mutation just wouldn't survive in, yeah, exactly. in nature yeah you have um, stabilizing selection you know tending to push things back towards you know trying to, you know, tends to constrain the variation that actually can um, be expressed in nature in terms of the individuals that make it. So, yeah. That, that leads to something else I want to ask you about with, you know, the sunflower family, man. I mean, there's so much phenotypic fluidity and plasticity. You know, you get so many different forms arising from the same the same plant it just seems like there's the genetic toolbox as i call it in the genome of, of so many species of composites enables them to look so different and it i mean would you would you say that that it kind of enables speciation or rapid speciation more so than many other plant families i mean there there is a huge i mean obviously you know it's probably aside from orchids the most species rich containing the most species plant family in the world yeah you just hit on the million dollar question you know why is it some groups are so evolutionarily labile and can diversify and you know in various different habitats around the world the composites are famous for their ability not only to reach island-like habitats but also to diversify in those and you know we've been asking ourselves this question for a long time as have others studying the comps and other groups that diversify a lot. You know, and historically people have referred to, 
you know, groups being young and evolutionarily vibrant, you know, that doesn't really cut it in terms of really understanding what it is about them that makes them that capable of evolving. But one of the things that comps are good at, I mean, they certainly have a lot of great defensive compounds and, you know, they're, but even when they find themselves in relatively permissive environments, you know, they, they, they clearly do speciate a lot. And, um, you know, that could have something to do with the genome um, architecture. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, when you look at these island-like populations that have made it in oceanic islands, a lot of them are polyploids. They have, you know, multiple genomic, uh, you know, they have more than a diploid constitution. They have additional sets of genomes. And um, you know, if you start out in that kind of a situation, you can have, um, differential silencing of genes and divergence of gene function, things like that, that allow you to maintain variation even if you have a small population size. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, yeah, they also have an interesting, like the silver swords are especially amazing because they're um, strictly self-incompatible. So there's a rule in, in nature called Baker's Rule. It's named for Herbert Baker. It uh, used to be in the botany department at Berkeley that long-distance colonists will tend to be self-compatible. That is that seed or pollen from the same plant can fertilize ovule of the same plant. And, you know, that's a common feature of weeds and it's great for getting around. You know, if you can mate with yourself, you don't need a partner if it only takes one seed to start a population. But uh, the silver swords are not that way. There are some self-incompatible populations. It's one species that's a colonist, the young lava flows is self-compatible, but it's clearly a derived self-compatibility. And most of the rest are strongly self-incompatible and once you, that kind of a system is really hard to evolve de novo. It almost had to have come from the mainland. And most of the California tarweeds are self-incompatible. They're obligate outcrossers. Um, so, do, you, do you think that's derived? Like, do you think that the ancestor, the, the initial colonizer that, 
that reached the Hawaiian archipelago? Do you think it was self-incompatible I, as well? I do. I do think it was. I mean, it's it's a really hard system to um, re-evolve once it's lost. It's a, um, there are very few instances in plant evolution where it's evolved independently, and uh, they're mostly pretty ancient, you know, examples. So it's possible that it was somewhat leaky, uh, compromised a bit upon establishment, and there was a you know there was a bit of selfing that happened, but um, you know that's a huge bottleneck to overcome to get established is to be self incompatible, especially when the dispersal unit in the composites is a single seed. You know it's not like a plant that has a fruit that gets eaten by a bird that has a bunch of seeds in it, and they all end up in the same place. You know, and you have different individuals of different genetic constitution. The comps are dispersing by individual, you know, each fruit has one seed in it, each cypsula or keen. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty remarkable case, and it's a rare exception to Baker's rule that uh, the self-incompatibility. But if you look at other comps that have diversified a lot in islands, they have what's called pseudo-self-compatibility, which is a system where they can self, um, but they preferentially outcross. If outcross pollen is present from a different plant, They'll go ahead and set seed preferentially. Um, you know, they'll they'll mate with the uh, outcross pollen. So that's a nice bed hedging strategy that comps have. A lot of different comp groups. So if you look at the uh, like in the Juan Fernandez or Robinson Crusoe Islands, the the tree cabbages there um, in Dendroceros, those have that system, and the Scalesias in in the Galapagos, which is the biggest radiation of flowering plants in the Galapagos, they're composites, and they have this pseudo self compatibility as well. So yeah. And so what does it what does it look like? What does pseudo self compatibility look like? Well, it just um, you know you wouldn't realize that they weren't selfers. You could cross them and you can get seed. I mean, you can self them and they'll set seed, but if you are careful about the study, um, you can find that they actually will preferentially set seed with um, pollen from a different individual. So that'll tend to that'll tend to promote outcrossing without prohibiting selfing. And uh, you know you kind of get the best of both worlds in terms of being able to reproduce with yourself if nobody else is around, but you can um, you know you'll outcross preferentially if somebody is. So by that helps the populations maintain genetic variation because each generation of selfing you lose a huge amount of genetic variation. So this combination of polyploidy is having multi more than two genomes copies and uh, and also having different kinds of genetic mechanisms to enforce outcrossing or promote outcrossing. You know, that's part of what's going on with some of the composites that I think is important in their evolutionary potential. But, you know, that can't be the whole story. Um, and we're still trying to understand, you know, what it is that the family has going for it. And it's not like all the composites do, actually. If you look at the, you know, you were down in South America, the Barnadesioids, um, yeah. that whole group, um, you know, they're sister to all the other composites. So the composite family, you know, has over 20,000 species. The Barnad and, and so you've got this huge disparity between the Barnadesioids which only have about a hundred species and all the other composites. So those two groups, you know, share, share <coughs> diverge from a common ancestor at the base of the family. 
Yeah. A long time a long ago, time right? Time. Like Oligocene. It's even older than that. We know now from some fossils that have been found in South America and more recently in Antarctica. The Antarctic fossils are a little bit sketchier. Wow. Uh, there's there's comps from Antarctica. There's like fossil, fossil yeah, they're fossil comps that go back Jesus. that go back to the Cretaceous. So are they talking, part of these areas or what? Um well that they're they do conform in their pollen morphology yeah, to some of those early diverging lineages. So it's um, it's intriguing as hell. And it's, uh, you know, Cretaceous, we're talking the age of dinosaurs, you know? Right, right. And, and I, I want to interrupt really quick. The Barnadizioids are fucking unreal. I mean, they look so different. Like Chukiaraga, you know, all, all these. I mean, even the Mutisioids look pretty different, but... Again, that's a different. Those aren't Barnadizioids. They've they're closer. I guess they're the, the Mutisioids are clo more closely allied to the rest of the composites, right? Not the Barnadizioids or what? Right, right. But the uh, the they're um, yeah. So the the Mutisioids, in the broad sense, like they used to be treated, form a basal grade in the in the compositey tree of life. And right. The so they're still different from Barnadizioids, but they're still, you know, closer to the bottom of the family tree, correct? Well, they, yeah, they branch off early uh, in, the, in the sister group to the Barnadizioids. And the Barnadizioids used to be considered Mutisioids. So they're similar yeah. enough in their morphology to the Mutisioids that, um, you know, they weren't realized to be distinct until uh, Bob Jansen and Jeff Palmer found that this is an amazing case of serendipity and science, by the way. I mean, those guys are amazing researchers, but you know, a lot of times serendipity is important. And um, so they were interested in looking at the chloroplast genome, you know, the, the chloroplast inside of plants where photosynthesis occurs also has a genome inside of it, a circular bacterial-like genome that's super conservative in its evolution in terms of structural evolution, the gene order is highly conserved across land plants. But um, so these guys grabbed a plant. Uh, they were at University of Michigan. They went in the greenhouse and grabbed a plant and they uh, mapped its genome order. And they said, oh, okay, it's just like all the other uh, land plants that has the general gene order. Let's look at one more. And so they go and they grab another composite and uh, they look at that and it has this massively rearranged genome. It's got this huge inversion, uh, single copy region inversion. And that's pretty unusual. I mean, that was a unique- It's like, it's like, it's like what is it, 22,000 base pairs or something? It's, it's a, like base, a, relatively it's a large. huge, yeah, it's a relatively large inversion. And so they said, let's look at some more comps. And every other comp that they looked at had that big inversion that was that nobody had ever seen before. And they couldn't find anything like the first one they looked at. So they went back and said, what is this plant that we looked at originally, this comp that didn't have the inversion? And it was a Barnadesia. So basically what they found is that all the composites have this inversion except for the Barnadesia, Barnadesioids, which maintain the ancestral arrangement of the gene order in the chloroplast genome. And so that allowed them to figure, okay, the Barnadizioids branched off before all the other composites diverged from a common ancestor. And so they erected the subfamily Barnadizioidae, um, you know, as a new subfamily. But yeah, I mean, 
that whole subfamily only has about 100 species in it. The rest of this wow. family has about over 20,000. So, you know, yeah. so what's what's responsible for this evolutionary success of the of the, of the sunflower family is not happening in the Barnardesioids. Um, it's, prob it's probably something that evolved later after the Barnardesioids branched off. And some of those Mutisioid lineages that it branched off then are also not very diverse. It's once you get down to the core of the composites, you know, these lineages that got into the temperate regions, got out of the tropics where things really just take off and you see this amazing diversification and diversification rate, you know. So there's something else happening there. Um, hard to say what it is, but, you know, the biochemical evolution of the family is pretty astonishing. And, you know, that that probably plays some role in it. Now, I, I want to talk again just about the, the Barnadesioids because I just, <laughs> to anyone listening, these things are so fucking weird. Like, there's, I call them dinosaur sunflowers. And, and I got distracted talking about mutisioids, but the mutisioids too, to a lesser extent. But, you know, the foliage is not soft. It's like this hard, spiky sclerophyllus, almost, you know, feels like plastic, like, yeah. you know, sharp plastic. They've got like, you know, jail shanks for leaves in some cases. Yeah, like, they're nasty things. Chuchiaraga spinosa, but they're fucking beautiful too. Like, you know, so many of them are adapted to hummingbird pollination and they're all in the Andes, right? I mean, all these Barnadesioids are in the Andes, correct? Yeah, they're all South American. And, uh, you know, that's part of, and then the sister group to all the composites is also strictly South American. You know, the Calisteraceae. Which oh is, yeah, we saw one of those. What the fuck? They were so weird, man. They are. God, they were so weird. Start, and if you start taking those things apart morphologically, they look so much like a composite. You know, it's really hard to find a characteristic of members of that family that isn't shared with the composite. And right. what, it, what it finally boils down to is the placentation of the ovary is different. You know, it's apical versus basal placentation of the single seed. So this, this micro synanthrological character um, is the only reliable one to tell, the, you know, the main reliable characteristic to tell those two families apart. So, so get, break that down. What would that look like? Like, what would a Calisteraceae seed? Because I didn't get to inspect any seeds. I just saw flowers. You know, we saw some at like 10,000 feet, um, like purely volcanic soil, like andesitic, not even soil. It was all rock. Really cool plants up there, too. Saw those violas up there, those rosalite violas near a ski resort in like, you know, next to a, a big, like couple mile long tunnel in a mountain that shoots through to the other side of the Andes to Argentina. Right. And we were trying to figure out what it was. And we're like, this is so fucking weird. And then we realized, oh, it's probably, it looks like Astoralis is the order of this. Oh, right. this is Calipheraceae. And we were, yeah, we couldn't, I think I sent you a picture of that one, but yeah, yeah, explain, explain what the seed looks like, like how it differs, like break it down for layman speak, you know? Yeah, so it all, I'm, all I'm talking about is just the, it's like the umbilical cord of the of the seed to the inside of the um, ovary uh, wall. So in the composites, it's attached at the base, the little, what they call a funiculus, which is like a little umbilical cord, attaches at the base of the, um, of the ovary. And in the Clisseraceae, it attaches apically at the top of the ovary. And, you know, that's, a, that's a pretty minor feature, you would think, but the old thinking among 
botanists was that getting to those two conditions evolutionarily <laughs> involves a lot of, you know, a really different pathway. And so the old synanthrologists, you know, people who study composites basically uh, just said, okay, that, that's a major, major difference between these families um, because you can't easily go from apical to basal attachment of the seed to the ovary, inner ovary wall, you know, the placenta, um, this basal placentation versus apical placentation. You can't uh, make that shift easily. So, you know, the relationship wasn't appreciated to be as close as it is. So, you know, it's a really minor little feature and evidently it's not such a big deal um, because, you know, they are sister families. But again, you know, the Clisseraceae, like the Barnadesioids, I think there are only about 60 species in the whole family. It's a really small family in terms uh -huh. of diversity. So, you know, you look at these, like the Clisseraceae branching off and the Barnadesioids branching off, later some of these Mutisioids branching off, those lineages don't amount to very many species taken together even. But then, you know, you look at the rest of the composites and, you know, boom, those things just exploded. So they were extremely successful and yeah. they're fucking everywhere. <laughs> yeah, something happened, you know. So the features that unite all the composites and that even unite the Clisseraceae and the composites, which is most of the obvious things, you know, they all have the secondary pollen presentation on the style and all these things that you might think are important evolutionary innovations. You can point to a bunch of things and say, oh, okay, there's a key innovation there. That probably led to their success. No, I, that can't be the answer that's found across all these things. Something else more cryptic, you know, something more um, hidden there that we don't fully appreciate that led to this massive radiation of the composites. And this is the mystery. And what do you, I mean, you know, it's hard to say for sure, but I mean, what do you, what do you think, man? What do you think really, why is this? What, Cause I'm in love with this goddamn family. Now I used to write them off. I used to not really, you know, I'll get into them eventually. I don't, you know, I feel that I used to feel the same way I, about composites that I feel about grass, but now yeah. getting into them and, you know, hanging out with Isaac and just traveling throughout the deserts and every goddamn composite I see, I have to get down, get full, you know, get macro shots with the 105 millimeter lens of the phyloreas and the flower heads and the florets and the fucking styles and dissect the Akeens. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed now just cause I realize you know, these things are everywhere, man. They are like, and, and just as an evolutionary model, they're so cool to study because it's, you know, like like you said, that there was this this thing that just led to their explosive success. What do you think that thing could be? Do you have any ideas? Well, I do think it probably has something to do with their biochemical evolution, you know, like defensive compounds, because they have yeah. a real, really amazing biochemistry and it's diverse. And it's deployed differently in different lineages. And there's a lot of, you know, novel compounds there. Um, you know, we're getting into, I mean, the composites, when you look at their distribution around the planet, they're by far the most successful, they're more, most successful in the drier parts of the world. You know, you get to the really wet tropics, the composites are pretty few and far between. But, um, you know, in the drier, harsher climates, those are the places where your comps really, you know, do wonderfully and are the biggest components of the flora oftentimes. So there's, you know, those are environments where the pressure from, um, you know, both from, you know, the, the, the drought stress 
and the herbivory pressures can be pretty extreme. You know, they're kind of both of those challenges in many cases are, uh, you know, super important. And they have, they have a lot of interesting innovations. I mean, the tarweeds also have a lot of crazy adaptations, like they're, you know, they, they can grow root systems super quickly to really, you know, deep depths. And, uh, you know, some of them actually have a mucilage in their leaves that is uh, really hydrophilic, you know, it really has a strong affinity for water and can help to maintain their turgor, you know, keep the cells from collapsing even when they're under really heavy duty water stress. That's really so, cool. That's what I wanted to ask you about next. Yeah, is how how do some of these things, <laughs> you know, how yeah. do some of these things flower in like the hottest, driest month of the year? Like I remember, you know, I used to run freight trains between Dunsmere and Klamath Falls. And I remember there's a stretch up there. You're maybe 4,500 feet elevation it's all volcanic you know it smells incredible and yeah it's all rabbit brush and sagebrush both composites and these things light up man in december or september excuse me i just remember you know a single lane track and for miles uh you know by there's a wildlife refuge up there i forget but right by the oregon state line and you're just you know you're going we'd be traveling 50 miles per hour you know ten thousand tons of shit behind us well not that much probably like five thousand because they got you know, restrictions on how much you can have because of the grade up there. But anyway, yeah. and you're just going through a sea of yellow. And it's like it hasn't yeah. rained in five months, and these things are just thriving, you know. And I saw Chrysothamnus visitiflorus on the dunes in Winnemucca in September. And they're, it's like it's like it's 85 degrees, and it hasn't rained in six months, and you're growing in sand. How are you, how are you blooming right now? Right, yeah. There's a bunch of different adaptations comps have for those kinds of situations. And, you know, they just really haven't been studied enough. In the tar weeds, you have this additional thing going on with those summer, late summer, fall flowering um, plants. You know, when you're out there flowering like that, it's not only hot and dry, but you're the green foliage, you know, as far as the herbaceous foliage goes, most everything else is dried out and withered. Right, so you stick on like a sore thumb. Exactly, totally. exactly. And so you're a super vulnerable, um, you know, organism, you can't get up and run away, you know, the insects come after you and you have to deal with it. And so the tarweeds, there's been some recent work on this. So that's those sticky glands that they have, you know, everybody's always thought, okay, that's great defense against herbivory. You know, that keeps them from being eaten by all kinds of animals, you know, insects, ungulates, you name it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
but there's a there that's true to some extent but there's another function there that's become come to be realized is that those sticky glands actually entrap a lot of uh passers-by what the entomologists call tourists these insects that just happen to alight on those plants and they get mired up in that goo and um so the plants are actually provisioning carrion on them that allows for the attraction of predatory insects that'll come and eat that carrion. And while they're there, they're gonna go after living uh, insects that are herbivorous and especially larvae like caterpillars of moths that, uh, that are feeding on the tarweed foliage. So yeah, there's a whole um, body of research that's been ongoing looking at yeah, the secondary benefit of having sticky foliage and the tarweeds, especially Mattia elegans, has been a, um, a really important system for trying to study that. So you've got this whole food web of arthropods, um, predatory, herbivorous, that are basically, you know, where the tarweeds are serving is kind of the, their whole little world that they're, um, you know, that's resulting in all these interesting interactions and the tar weeds, you know, work make it make it work for them by um, by this attraction of predators that'll come in and and uh, you know feed on the carcasses, but that get caught on the glands, but also will pick off the insects that are actively eating on tar weeds. So you know, it kind of just scratched the surface of understanding all that. But that's. Uh, you know, that's part of the picture too, is that you've got to look at the whole ecosystem to really, you know, understand what's going on in terms of the adaptations of these plants. So you mentioned mucilage, how does that help? Uh, you said it's, it's hydrophilic, how does that help uh, with the hot and dry? Yeah, so this, this stuff is really, really sticky. I mean, so look, uh, this stuff is, um, has this amazing, water holding capacity. It's a pectinaceous carbohydrate. Um, kind of like you would see in okra, kind of? Exactly, exactly, yeah, definitely. Malvales has a lot of these compounds. And uh, so this stuff will hold onto the water really well. And um, so if you have your stomata open, you know, your pores on the leaves, you have to have them open in order to take in CO2 to conduct photosynthesis you're losing water out of those pores, you know, out of the stomata. But, you know, if you have a substance in your leaves that's actually hanging on to water, pretty, um, has a really high affinity for water like that, you can potentially um, keep your leaf turgor, you know, keep your, your cells from collapsing uh, wow. at a lower hydration level than you could otherwise if you have this kind of mucilage in your leaves. And that's, part of the story with the tarweeds, not the whole story of how they keep from, you know, how they can survive these conditions. But like, if you look at a genus like Hemazonia, or especially if you look at something like Argyroziphium up in those high alpine deserts in the Hawaiian Islands, those leaves have big mucilage channels in them that uh, are just full of this stuff, you know, and it's just, when I try to extract DNA out of the leaves, yeah, I found this out when I was a grad student to my dismay at the time, because, you know, I would have to dilute the leaf grindate 
to an incredible extent because it would just turn into a jello that would just keep swelling, <laughs> you know. And I couldn't get the DNA away from this damn stuff. And it was, uh, you know, super frustrating. What'd you finally uh, do? You know, <laughs> well, you know, like they say, this, this solution to pollution is dilution. And so in this case, I just increased the volume of the, um, of the extraction buffer until it finally exceeded the, um, you know, the water holding capacity of this mucilage. And I was able to actually do something, but I had to do incredible dilutions. I mean, it's a lot like working with cacti, you know, succulents. Right. Have, you know, you're say they're, they're the yeah, same way. Cacti are extremely, extremely mucilaginous, correct? Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that mucilage is important. You know, that stuff really hangs on to water like you wouldn't believe. And no, so they, shit. I yeah, never thought about that before. That's really cool. Yeah, that's part of the part of the you know the story, but there's other adaptations you know that they have like a lot of the tarweeds like in Media and in uh, Lagophila, um, they they close their heads up at midday, so if you go out around the middle of the day, you don't necessarily even spot them because their heads are closed up, but you know that's strictly a response to drought stress. Yeah. And if you water, if you water them, if you keep them watered, their heads will open, you know, remain open during the day. But, you know, you can lose a lot of water out of your Corollas. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have a thick cuticle or wax around them or anything. So, but yeah, they've got all kinds of tricks that they have evolved, you know, to that help them to, you know, to be able to live under those conditions. And, you know, it's a great time. They, they don't really have to share their pollinators very much. Uh, the plants that are flowering that time of oh, year, yeah. you know, they got a competitive so, edge, man. I mean, I, Grindelia is another one, you know, that just, oh, man, yeah. and those things are so waxy, man. They're so, and, and in that case, they're probably relying on what, like a thick waxy cuticle to hold that moisture in or what? That's part of it. You know, they also have a, you know, they're called gum plants because they do have a lot of stickiness and they, you know, if you break the foliage, there's that, white uh, latex and all. So there's there's a lot going on there biochemically too that's probably involved in in drought stress as well. Do you know anything about Grindelia? Is there is there much validity to I know it's been used as you know for poison oak poison oak rashes. Do you know anything about the phytochemistry or in the ethnobotany of that? Like is there any validity to it that you know of? Because I the other I mean there's like a tech new remedial spray you can get for poison oak that's got Grindelia robusta. You know, I don't know about that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, I had a grad student, uh, Abby Moore, who's now the curator of the herbarium down at University of Oklahoma. And, uh, she did her dissertation on uh, Grindelia evolution. And, and um, she found out that um, the Californian Grindelias, you know, we've always known, well, she came to work with me and said, I want to work on the most difficult group of composites in California taxonomically <laughs> and she talked to me and she talked to Strother you know Dr. Strother in the University of Brain and we were both pretty much on the same page there we just said well if you could figure out Grandelia you'd be the first one and so she took it on herself and she looked at it worldwide you know it's there's quite a lot of South American <coughs> diversity as well as North American diversity and you know by and large uh, 
the North American, South American things, we, she was able to work out their relationships pretty well. When you get to California, it's just like those things started diversifying yesterday. That all of that diversity, and there's been a lot of species recognized by some people, like Steiermark. I don't know how many species of Californian Grandelia he recognized in his taxonomy. But the opposite extreme, you know, Strother only recognized a couple of species for California. Because when you really start looking closely, it's really hard to group them into, um, you know, into piles, into discrete taxa. And what she found is the reason for that is those things have just diversified in like an evolutionary eye blink. Like re relatively but recently, like they're kind of still, super recent. And they probably still super. hybridized too, huh? Oh, yeah. And they're. Um, you know, there's been polyploidization as well, where they've undergone genomic amplification on top of all that, which, you know, complicates things and, you know, certainly, you know, is a, has a role to play in their diversification. But, uh, yeah, she was finding, like, things that were called the same species, um, you know, were spanning grasslands coming right up to salt marshes and going right out into the salt marsh. <laughs> but then when she started, you know, then she started looking at their genetics and realized these things on the grassland and the adjacent salt marsh aren't exchanging genes at all. I mean, they're completely distinct. Wow. But, but you know, you cannot easily tell them apart. I mean, there's more going on there, it looked like, in terms of like an interior to coastal gradient, you know, along that steep climatic gradient as you go from the California coast you know, where it can be like 50 degrees in the summer and you go just a couple of miles over the hills and it's, you know, 100 plus degrees Fahrenheit. So, And they know, do in both. I mean, it's crazy. They, there's one here. There's one here I saw, and it's in, like around the Oklahoma-Texas border, Grandelia ciliata. And, you know, like most composites, they can be, you know, two feet tall or they can be like eight feet tall. I mean, I saw one that we measured. It was, it was literally eight feet tall. It was a fucking eight foot tall stalk of Grindelia. I couldn't believe it. I shouted, no, as soon as I realized what it was, you know, and I was, I was kind of just blown away, you know? Yeah, they're amazing. They just show so much, so much diversity and variation. Um, one of the real success stories in the Aster tribe, although the Aster tribe in general, North America has just been a phenomenal story of, of adaptive radiation. I mean, all of these genera that we used to think, like Aster, that uh, have a lot of old world members, as well as new world members. And then what came to be found was that, no, those things in the old world have very little to do with anything going on in the new world, with, with a few exceptions like Baccarus. Um, the asters of the new world represent a, an adaptive radiation that's just within the new world, you know. And all these old old world generic names have gotten shed from the taxonomy of new world uh, aster tribe because uh, the relationships just weren't there. Their, the relationships were among the new world things, not between the new world and old world things. So to be, so, to, be, uh, to, be to be clear though, so this would be subfamily asteroidiae which is huge in North America. It's probably like what the largest subfamily in oh, North America. Sure. And then you've oh, got all these other yeah. tribes and then you've got sub tribes. So you're dealing with like below family, you're dealing with like what three, three or four different uh, classifications, you know, clades of 
subclades of 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 organizing taxonomy, right? Which is can be really confusing to people who don't know composites yet. But, right, you, know, right. you, you kind of yeah, need it because point. they've radiated so much. There's so much speciation. Right, right. So I'm just talking about the Aster tribe itself, just the tribe of Styrii, uh, you know, which is uh, a super diverse tribe and uh, throughout the world, but it just has this amazing new world radiation that's happened. And uh, Grandelia is part of that story, but it's just one of many stories within that particular tribe. So it's, uh, yeah, anyways, Grandelias are fun and they're, they're a lot of, there are a lot of groups, you know, like you get out to the Great Lakes and the Northeast, the floras are not as diverse as they are, say, in California. In general, the diversity is doesn't represent so much in situ diversification. But if you look at groups like Symphia trichum or Solidago. I was just going to say, man, the Symphia trichums are fucking crazy. There's so many of them. Yeah, so there, yeah, that's another case, you know, just these... Uh, certain composite lineages just seem to diversify like crazy and you know where where they find themselves um the thistles are another good example you know the new world thistles and circe and just amazing diversity there that's continuing to be described and you know adaptive radiation after adaptive radiation um, mm -hmm. within continental settings you know we're not talking even about islands just really um, Right. Let's let's talk so, about the thistles, right? So that's that's like an old world group that's considered a mostly what European and North African group. But same thing with you know long distance dispersal from tarweeds to Hawaii. The the some of the thistles. How many how many dispersal events are there estimated to be from looking at the genomes to the New World of thistles? Oh well, the yeah the New World thistles there are. There are multiple genera that represent different, um, you know, that have a different biogeographic history, but Circeum, which is, you know, far and away, you know, by far the vast majority of diversity in the Thistle tribe in the uh, New World, um, that group, you know, all of the, you know, essentially all of the New World diversity represents one major dispersal event in diversification. So, you know, it's a phenomenal adaptive radiation. And, uh, you know, there's just radiation after radiation in that group in different parts of its range. Right. Like and in the California... Artichokes, of course, are in that subfamily. Oh, right, in that tribe, too. Yeah, they're they're in the tribe Karjui. Yeah, as well, exactly. Right, so... But, uh, you know, unfortunately, most thistles that people know in the in North America, at least, are weedy thistles that you know don't have new world origins and have right. uh, you know just become super super weedy groups like centaria you know that everybody loves to hate you know the yellow star thistle and purple you know purple knapweed all these really nasty um invasives if you go to uh iberia you know to spain and get into some of the mountains around there you know, you'll fall in love with that group because, uh, you know, there's so much local endemism on serpentine and every, you know, various situations. Are there serpentine uh, in Spain? Yeah, 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 there is. You get into wow. Andalusia. Yeah, you yeah, know, definitely. what you're talking about is the same thing. I, you know, I used, there's, because there used to be certain plants I hate, just invasive ones that were brought over in the last couple hundred years. But uh, 
you know, of course, I've always said when you see something in its ecological context in which it evolved, you get an appreciation for it, you know, and that's kind of what happened to me with eucalyptus when I went to Australia. I was like, wow, these things are actually extremely fucking cool and ecologically successful in their environments. You know, they've been through this filter of really hot, dry, you know, prone to herbivory settings in continental Australia. And they've, you know, that this is now a scene where they're cool and they're not forming these epic monocultures. It's pretty, you know, pretty remarkable. Right. Yeah, they behave themselves a lot more when they're um, in their, you know, in their natural context where they have their natural enemies and, you know, they're held in check a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, but God, yeah, there's so many problematic thistles in the North American flora now that <laughs> it's hard for people to feel good about that tribe, you know, but there's a lot there that to love and, and uh, you know, people that just pull up every thistle they see. Um, you know, in addition to blooding their hands are probably, you know, inadvertently pulling up uh, natives in a lot of situations. We've seen that before. Right. So you got to be careful about that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's one of the more spectacular examples of adaptive radiation. And so, that tribe in the so talk about like, well, and I only want to spend a little bit of time on this because we got so much more to talk about. So I hope, I hope we've got more. Sure, room, but, sure, sure. But the, the, the dissecting the flower head of a thistle, they don't have any ray flowers. They don't have any daisy rays, no ligules. It's all disc florets and they're the florets are relatively long and deep, right? Yeah, so they share that characteristic with uh, that actually goes way back in the composites, where the uh, the you have really pretty much lanceolate um, disc corolla lobes that are long and narrow. So you get that kind of rather than having these um, triangular deltate um, corolla lobes in the disc flowers like you get in most of the asteroids. Um, yeah, the Thistles have those really long, long corolla lobes, even more exaggerated than the norm for some of those early diverging. And do they have nectar glands at the base of those corollas, or how do what attracts the pollinators to them? Oh yeah, they definitely have nectaries. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them produce a lot of nectar, you know, and attract hummingbirds, which have a you know huge, um, you know, nutrient requirement. So yeah, there. In fact, you know, it's amazing. There's been actually some speculation, um, although it's certainly not a resolved issue as to what the ancestral pollinators were for composites. And some people have even argued that there's so many bird pollinated composites down in that mutisioid grade towards the base of the family and the barnadesioids that maybe bird pollination was ancestral. Um, you know, so we got a lot of members of those early diverging lineages that produce a lot of right nectar. but uh yeah but the bulk of diversity in the composite is certainly insect pollinated and so um, we're, we're... but you know the pollination of the family is really understudied pollination ecologists tend to be sort of disparaging of composites you know because the composites don't really have the cool floral um specializations in terms of Confirmation of the corollas and, uh, you know, interesting, precise pollen placement and that kind of thing that tends to attract pollination ecologists. So, you know, they're not regarded as a very glamorous group by the pollination ecologists. And accordingly, you know, they just haven't really been studied that well. So there's a lot to learn about composite pollination. Um, certainly, they, you know, they do have 
we do tend to attract multiple Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Um, types of pollinators, um, you know, you know, pretty um, generalist, and, and but there are some comps that um, that have even in the California flora that where there are particular insects that depend on a particular composite for um, survival. There's a bee that harvests pollen exclusively from Blenosperma. You know, Blenosperma and the no. What, what is that? What uh, what little, group is that a member of? So that's a, an early diverging lineage within the Senecio oh, tribe. Wow. So, yeah, so Crocidium and Blenosperma. That was um, another group we saw a shit ton of in Chile was Senecios, man. There's, they're everywhere and there's so many different kinds. They were the only, they were like one of the only non-Muticioid and non-Barnadizioid composites that we saw it on there. Yeah, they're amazing when you get into the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, Africa has amazing Senecionid diversity well, as well. Why do you think they're so successful uh, in terms of dispersal? Is it just that, that Pappas, that wind dispersal that they've got, or what? Well, you know, they yeah, Senecio tribe is noted for having a huge number of Pappas bristles. You know, they're those super fine Pappas bristles, and um, large numbers of them on their fruits, attached to their fruits. And, you know, that can cause them to get fouled up in the feathers of birds pretty easily and, uh, you know, get stuck there. So they have potential for being animal transported um, from that standpoint. And, yeah, one of the biggest radiations in the Robinson Crusoe Islands, you know, the Juan Fernandez Islands off the coast of Chile is what's been called Robinsonia. It's now realized to be nested within Senecio, but it's a, you know, it in the, in the tree cabbages are the two biggest radiations in the whole flora there. So yeah, they're, they're also players when it comes to thinking about adaptive radiation. And what, what is, what are the tree cabbage dendros? I got one of those in my backyard. They're fucking really cool. Explain, those, those are a member of the chicory subtribe, right? Or the chicory subfamily? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're the tri in the tribe. Yeah, they're in the chicory tribe, um, and the Lactucae, and they uh, they definitely are closely related to the Woody Sonkas Alliance, which is also diversified in the um, Canary Islands out in the Atlantic. So you've got these two groups, you know, in these different remote archipelagos that diversified dramatically. Um, the Woody Sonkas Alliance is one of the most diverse groups of flowering plants in the Canary Archipelago. And it turns out from phylogenetic work 
done by Shungshul Kim and colleagues that the Woody Sankas Alliance and the tree cabbages of the Juan Fernandez are actually really closely related. They're not each other's closest relatives, but you know, it, it kind of begs the question is, you know, what what's responsible for, you know, was there something in the common ancestor of these two groups that gave them a special propensity for island diversification? And, um, you know, it happened independently in different parts yeah. of the world. Um, yeah, the woody sunk are the uh, one of the tree cabbages though, their closest relatives are in these islands just north of the Robinson Crusoe Islands, the Desventuradas Islands, uh, San Ambrosio and San Felix Island in particular, where tiny little rocks out in the Pacific, and you get this uh, monotypic genus there, Thamnoceros. Uh, we still haven't published. Are you there, Joey? Yeah, there we go. All right. Sorry. Yeah, the, I, the app just broke down for whatever reason. So I'll just uh, carry on, moving right along, carrying on. So talking about Themnosaurus, uh, what, how big is the island that Themnosaurus grows on? Oh, you can walk across it in a short period of time. I mean, it's just, I don't know the exact square uh, mileage of it, but it's it's small. I mean, you can circumnavigate the island probably part of a day. Um, it's a tiny island. There's two islands, San Felix and San Ambrosio. And actually it's interesting because there's also an endemic genus that's been historically assigned to the um, rock daisy tribe there. And Isaac's been trying to get there for a long time to collect it. Yeah, he told me about that. He told me about that. Yeah, wow. like Capsis. But there's also- Themnosaurus is a chicory, right? You said? Yeah, it's a chicory. So it's a big chicory out there in those islands. And uh, we, so, were, we were able to sample it from a guy that was out on one of those islands many years ago and basically found out it was sister to Dendrosaurus, you know, the tree cabbages of the Juan Fernandez. So, yeah, that's a cool result to have sister groups that have, are endemic to different islands out in the Pacific. Those are pretty far apart there. Um, but yeah, that's the closest relationship to the to the tree cabbages. Or is another um, woody island lineage. That's yeah. That's I, I'd love to make it out there someday, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be very. It's got to be very foggy. No kidding. You know? It it looks pretty lush. Yeah. Although I could hey, it goes so through different. Go yeah, it goes through some really dry spells out there too. So let's talk about chicories then just try to cover them really quick so with chicories you've got something really weird because there's no again no no rafe is it no it is all ligulate fluoresce it's all ligules so ligules you can kind of think of as rays except in the chicories they've got five teeth on the distal end of those those rays right. uh, instead of three like most composites do and they don't have any disc fluorets Right, so they and then like the ray flowers are only pistillate in function, uh, or sometimes they're just flags, like in a true sunflower, helianthus. Um, you know, there isn't even pistillate function, they've lost that, and so they're just like an advertisement to pollinators that doesn't have any sexual expression. But in the ligulate flowers of uh, of chicories, you have both pistillate and staminate function in every flower. So they're different from rays that way too, is that rays never have staminate function, but the ligulate flowers always do. 
So, so in, in all composites, ray flowers, except for chicories, never have, they never put pollen out there. They're entirely pistillate. They're entirely female. That's right. So there's always that period when the heads, you know, the heads open um, centripetally from the outside in. So the first flowers that open are the ray flowers before any of the disc flowers open. So in composites, you have that brief window of time where you have those stigmas from the, from the um, ray flowers um, accessible only to outcross pollen, you know, just from a diff, well, it could be from a flowering head on the same plant. So it could potentially self um, between heads of the same plant, but there's a, you know, it increases the opportunity for outcrossing when you can't self, when right. you can't self within a head. So there is that brief moment there where only um, pollen from a different head can come in and pollinate those ray flowers before any of the disc flowers but open. In, but in, in chicory, the sicorioidae, yeah. is that how you pronounce it? Well, that's the, the sicorioids are the subfamily and then sicorii is the tribe. So yeah, that's, that's right. Okay, so subfamily being, I guess, just broader and encompassing more. But in Sikor, in the subfamily, is it, it? So it's the same case. It's all ligulate flowers, and the ligules have both staminate and pistillate capabilities. So just in, actually, just in the um, chicory tribe. So yeah, that that uh, ligulate flower morphology is restricted to just that one tribe. It's so different, you know, that it's amazing that it's so um, restricted to that one clade, just to the tribe Sikorii. But um, yeah, there are some features though that that tribe shares with related tribes that used to be thought to form a natural group. So that Sikorioidae subfamily used to take in a bunch of tribes, but it's gradually been whittled away as we find that the that Sikorii tribe is um, you know, not constituting a clade with a bunch of other tribes. It's part of this grade in the aster or in the uh, in the asteraceae or compositae family, so yeah, there's in some classifications now there's just the one tribe, Sicorii, and the Sicorioidae tribe. Yeah, that's uh, so it's uh, what's that? So the subfamily has how many tribes in it then? Well, currently under some classifications there's only one, so it's oh wow yeah, but it used to be that about half the tribes were in that. Um, subfamily and the other half were in the asteroids in the asteroid. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So right, Carl right. Quist and Wagenitz uh, about 1976 published uh, systems like that. And there was a lot of merit to those systems, but it turns out that the, the features that united the sicorioids Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are actually um, found in this basal grade through the whole family. So the asteroids are clade, and the sequorioids are this, in the way that they used to be treated, this really long, deep basal grade. Even the mutisioids were part of that tribe, or that subfamily. That subfamily, wow. I mean, sequorioidae. Okay. So, so, that, so let's let's talk yeah. about. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, Go so ahead. it just, uh, yeah, it just uh, goes to show you that there's been conservation of a lot of characteristics that used to be thought to unite this subfamily. Um, through that whole basal grade, you know, the backbone of the family evolutionarily. But then once you get to the asteroids, you know, you get a lot of changes. And, you know, there's a lot of the, a lot of the action in terms of the evolutionary diversifications in the asteroid. So that's that's one thing I want to ask you about. There used to only be what, like three subfamilies that's right. there were only t- in asteroids. Right. And, there- and then it was changed. And now, now it's realized what, there's like 12 or 13. Like it's much more... There's been a lot more going on than we originally thought, right? Could you talk about that? When was that revision done? Yeah, so it's really come with the molecular phylogenetics, uh, you know, the understanding that's developed there, where we found out that that a lot of the tribes that we thought were united as a clade are actually a grade. And so, you know, the classification um, emphasizes clades because those are all shared, you know, they all are united by... Uh, all the, they're all the members. They they share a common ancestor. They don't share with anything else. If you're a clade, right? They're they're monophyletic. I guess yeah. Talk about that. The difference between clade and group. Clade is is monophyletic and more evolutionarily precise, correct? Right. So a grade um, is a a group that retains a bunch of ancestral characteristics. Um, so it's basically a they rep, You know they have a sh- set of features that's been retained for a long period of time, but they're not united by a shared derived feature that's exclusive to them. So that helped, I mean, it is useful sometimes to talk about grades in terms of understanding how characters have evolved through groups, but for classification purposes, um, grades are not a great um, grouping because um, you're leaving out a lot of the descendants of the most recent common ancestor of all those things that make up the grade. So, right. So it would be like it would be like saying, you know, like for a human family, that you're just as closely related to your cousin as you are to your brother, which obviously isn't true. Yeah, it's almost more like even more like saying, um, you know, if there are two siblings that look a lot like each other that they're more closely related than they are to this other sibling that, you know, through genetic recombination just looks, you know, has a lot of differences. Um, You know, they're all equally closely related. It's just two of them are more similar to each other than they are to the other one. And so the kind of criterion of grouping things together that are a grade requires both a phylogenetic and a phonetic criterion, the phonetic criterion just being overall similarity. But, you know, we don't, since characteristics of organisms, organisms evolve at different rates, if we really want our classification to reflect recency of common ancestry, 
we can't use similarity as a proxy for phylogeny because it'll mislead you um, frequently. It usually does, actually. So, like the case of right, you can't just assume you can't just assume things are closely related because they look right, similar. Like the California tar weeds we were talking about. Um, a lot of people might say, okay, that's a group. I want to recognize the California tar weeds as a taxonomic group. Well, that wouldn't be fair because then you're leaving out the Silver Sword Alliance in Hawaii. It's actually more closely related to just the media lineage within the California tar weeds. But they've gone off to an oceanic island and, you know, they're, they've just changed dramatically because of ecological opportunity. And, uh, and yet, you know, you want a classification system that reflects that relationship. Um, and that's what you would lose if you just went with overall similarity. So that's, that's kind of the key difference. Okay. Okay, so but but so what were the original <clears throat> what were the original subfamilies that taxonomists assumed composed the family oh, yeah. and, and what are they now? Yeah, so if you go far enough back, if you even go just far enough back to you know Munz's California Flora, the book uh, published in late 1950s, in there um, the composites are broken into two groups, the tubula flurry which would be those things that have um, uh, disc flowers, at least as one of their floral types, and the ligula flory, which is the sicoriae, you know, the group we were just talking about, the chicories. And that was a pre prevalent classification, um, you know, up until about the mid seventies, where people classified, you know, the ligula flory from the, you know, the basically you had the chicories and you had the everything else. But that was a totally misleading classification. You know, the chicories have evolved a bizarre floral type. Um, they represent a pretty derived branch within the overall composite phylogeny. It's not like they're the sister to the other composites, you know, far from it. Um, and so, yeah, it was only after more anatomical work was done. I mentioned Carl Quist and Wagenitz in 1976. They came up with this Sicorioidae versus asteroidae. So the asteroid is pretty much like we recognize it today. And sicorioidae would be everything else that we recognize today in terms of subfamilies. But then it was like I mentioned with Jansen and Palmer, when they found those chloroplast DNA, that big chloroplast DNA inversion, that led then to the erection of the Barnadesioids. So then there were three subfamilies. But then now with more molecular phylogenetic work showing this big, what had been the sicorioids being this really deep grade that has all these things branching off the backbone of the, of the family. Um, you know, we've had to break the family up into smaller subfamilies. I mean, the sicorioids have had to be broken up further, not just hornadesioids um, and sicorioids, but all these other subfamilies. So there's 12 now total? Uh, it's something around like that. Yeah, it might even be more, but I think that's right. I think you're, you're around a dozen. Wow. Okay. And, you know, let's talk about Hecastoclase too. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. wow. that, that it's, so that's a monotypic subfamily. What, and it's assumed that is a really old lineage that got up to North America from South America. Any ideas on when that dispersal event happened? That's an old dispersal <laughs> event. Yeah. That one goes back, um, millions and millions of years. I, I can't recall the precise estimates. And of course, there's a big error bar on any of those kinds of estimates. 
you know, we don't have the level of precision we would like, but that's an, an early North American immigration. And who knows if that clade was much more diverse in the past. They have the most bizarre heads. You know, they have these compound heads of were um, made up of, of uh, you know, heads of single florets. So you, have a, you basically have a head of heads in Acastocleus where, you know, you have an involucre around each floret. So those are individual heads inside that bigger head that then has those weird spinose brack, colored bracts that surround the entire secondary head. Right. Uh, you know, that serve as kind of an advertisement. So, you know, such a bizarre morphology. There's nothing like that elsewhere in the family or nothing quite like it. And then the leaves, the foliage is just, it's super unremarkable too, right? And it's just like these fascicled kind of linear leaves. They don't look like much. They're really easy to confuse. If they're not flowering, they're really easy to just ignore and confuse with other things. And then when they flower, you know, right. you look at them and you're like, wow, this is, this is, <laughs> this is really weird. They're, totally weird. Yeah. And they're mostly high elevation. They're mostly high elevation calcareous soils in Death Valley area or what? Yeah, the Death Valley region, um, up around the White Inyo range. So those desert mountains out there are their stronghold. And, you know, they go out into Nevada as well. But it's, a, you know, they're in that sort of Inyo region, which is such an important biodiversity hotspot for the deserts. Where we yeah. have a lot of local endemism and a lot of, um, you know, edaphic endemism. And, um, but they're definitely one of these paleoendemic lineages in the sunflower family. You know, that sounds a little bit hard to swallow for a lot of people because they go, oh, wait a minute, the sunflower family is a really young family compared to a lot of families. But we know now the family's a lot older than we thought before. And that lineage has been around for a long time. And, you know, who knows how diverse that lineage used to be. You know, fortunately, Hecastocleus is still hanging on to at least show us that there was such a lineage that made it to North America yeah. maybe tens of millions of years ago and still there. But uh, yeah, that one definitely deserves more study. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And just, you know, from, from being down in Chile and, and looking at all the composites down there, like I said, those muticioids, those dinosaur sunflowers with the really waxy, spiny foliage, you know, that's what Acastocles looks like. It, I mean, it looks like it came from that lineage uh, and it, it, you know, just it, it's just like an errant South American dinosaur sunflower that made it up here and is, you know, forms this monotypic clade. Um, 
but going back to those those mutisioids and stuff i mean what what is up with those man they're really they've got a different floral morph floral morphology too right they're like bilabiate or trilabiate but also like the foliage man is the foliage is really weird it's i mean really leathery and and you know coriaceous and spiny and just resistant to being chewed on and 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 what what else is notable about the mutisioids well they you know they do have a lot of floral variation like you mentioned you know that's where you get the bilabiate corollas where you know which are more like a typical um asterid you know in general in, in terms of the, the overall um you know the subclass asteridae having the bilabiate corolla and things like lamiales you know you get that sort of thing in the individual florets of the mutisii or I should say the mutisioid lineages there are several now that are recognized as distinct tribes that have that bilateral sim or that those bilaterally symmetrical flowers that uh, you know are two lipped um you know that to me is a you know super amazing thing and one of the features but you get other kinds of head conformations and those things too and members of those groups you know they are early diverging groups they've been around a long time and they've had a long time to evolve you know different pollinator relationships and different morphologies it's a group that's unfortunately kind of depauperate in the california flora you know we just right. we just have the trixis and accordia right yeah and then the savi tribe yeah now they're treated in a different tribe than Mutisi and in Mutisi sensu stricto, we just have the trail plant, you know, Dino colon bicolor, which has totally bizarre heads, you know. I mean, those things are crazy looking with those huge fruits that have massive glands on them, you know, coming off the actual fruit walls. You know, this they, is a California native, or, or I'm not familiar with it. <clears throat> yeah, the trail plant, it grows in the understories of redwood forests and conifer forests called the trail plant because it grows it tends to grow in disturbed areas like trails and if it, you flip the leaf over it uh they're, they're kind of bright and uh, you know they kind of um yeah point the way or whatever on the trail but they're they have heads that are not immediately recognizable as composite heads when you first take a look they have uh, staminate functional central florets and then these weird pistillate marginal florets that have these big protruding fruits that stick out of the head you know the ovaries are massive and then they have these big huge stock glands all over the fruits uh, they stick to you really the fruits are you know, the actual fruit wall is really sticky because of those glands and they get carried around a lot so they're pretty ruderal but they're a native you know and they're there's diversity in japan it's uh group that's um you know it's kind of a circumboreal distribution there's even a disjunct there are disjunct populations in the great lakes too it's one of these groups that has a disjunction between the west and the east in north america undoubtedly a group that's been transported around by birds but that's mm -hmm. our only sense you know, that's our only strictly speaking member of the muticity tribe in california flora um and it's a bizarre so one. so talking about the history of the family i mean mutisioids again they're one of those basal families it's thought that the family originated in south america right and and we the we've got two types of fossils but we got pollen fossils and then you got macro fossils how old what are the oldest of each 
Well, the pollen fossils that are oldest go all the way back to the Cretaceous, and those are down in Antarctica. So the family used, you know, we always used to say, in fact, there was a paper published that was led by Vicki Funk, you know, late great synanthrologist, uh, dear, yeah. dearly recently departed, that uh, was titled something like Everywhere But Antarctica, you know, the history of the composite. But now we know, or at least there's reasonably good evidence that the composite um, used to occur in Antarctica, and it's even conceivable that it originated in Antarctica and, you know, went huh. extinct there over time after That's it moved, moved into South America. So, uh, yeah, those are the oldest fossils attributed to the family down there. And then the oldest macro fossils are early Cenozoic um, from uh, uh, in the Eocene, um, and those would be from uh, South America. So, and what's the name of that genus that begins with an R? I forget the name. Um, I don't think that though, that fossil's been assigned to a genus, the, the macrofossil, but they're they're assignable. They're they're assignable to early diverging lineages within the family. The pollen's been assigned to to um, near the you know it, it's there's. They're somewhere in the in that Barnadesioid uh, rest of the family sister group region of the tree. Um, some people assign the pollen to the Barnadesioids and to and the other uh, macro the big macro fossil that was published of a pretty intact head was assigned to you know pretty close to the base of the sister group to Barnadesioids. So there's mm. you know there's a there's a better fossil record than we thought. I mean, just in the last 10 years or so, some really important fossils have been um, published, but yeah. It's and the, pollen, the pollen is, I mean, the pollen is easily distinguishable from other angiosperms, the pollen of composites. Yeah, the pollen of composites varies a lot between different groups. Um, that old distinction between the sicorioids in the broad sense and the asteroids, that two subfamily system that uh, sicorioids versus asteroids from the mid 70s that was based in part on pollen differences so the asteroids tend to have pollen that's spinos that has you know these projecting spines out of a fairly uniform overall surface um, kind of a uniform uh, uniformly projecting spines everywhere and then the uh, sicorioids have a an exine, you know, the outer pollen wall that is comprised of ridges and, and valleys. So these, um, this really different looking kind of uh, pollen morphology. So that's the way that, you know, that those earlier diverging lineages tend to have that pollen that's um, dominated by these, these ridges and valleys. And then the, the asteroids, more the spinose pollen morphology but yeah there are some there's enough pollen differentiation between certain groups to where pollen fossils can be useful in placing fossils or placing you know, figuring out the major groups that these pollen fossils belong to but but it's uh you know you can't get down to the level of precision that you'd like without additional fossils in many cases Right, right, right. And they're, they're, I mean, this is all presumably using electron microscopy, right? That's right. 
Yeah, yeah, to get down to the real details, scanning electron microscopy and transmission electron microscopy. Okay, so let's let's talk about, you know, moving to the other side of the world. Let's talk about, uh, you know, Tanzania, Mount Kenya. Uh, what's going on there with some of like the, the dendrocinesios and the really weird, I mean, these are things, these are plants that they're composites, but they're what, like 20, 30 feet tall? They form these massive... Uh, would you woody trunks? I mean, what 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 are they what are they like? Yeah, you got it. There's uh, the giant senecios, um, much like the giant lobeliads of that um, of those East African highlands. You get both um, you know these woody growth forms in a, in families that are generally not um, that arborescent, and also you you know you get quite a bit of diversity and quite a bit of diversification ecological diversification um, that also is associated with island-like uh, habitats. You know, you have these equatorial highland peaks that are separated by valleys, you know, deep valleys. And so there's probably a, a certain amount of, um, you know, the ecological opportunity in those habitats probably promoted year-round growth and the development of arborescent habits. And then in addition, you know, you have a lot of different kinds of habitats that are not very similar to habitats in the surrounding lowlands, you know, the tropical lowlands. Those are, you know, it's very similar to the Andes in terms of the kind of evolutionary scenarios that have played out. You know, in the Andes, you have the giant lupins and um, the espaletias and things that have diversified in these uh, basically temperate, uh, or I should say, cool equatorial conditions that are really different from the warm equatorial conditions at lower elevation. So they're essentially like massive oceanic islands in the, in the case of the Andes and more limited in the case of the East African highlands. But you, know, you get mm -hmm. these woody growth worms that evolve in these island-like habitats. Um, there's been a lot of debate about why that woodiness evolves in those island-like situations you know, on true islands as well as in these tropical um, high mountains, which are island-like. And, uh, you know, the potential for year-round growth in a novel habitat where you're basically far from source areas of organisms that would normally encounter, you know, live in those kinds of environments can lead to the kind of isolation and, um, niche availability, you know, due to lack of competitors and all that can promote, you know, radiate both the evolution of woodiness as well as, or the expansion of woodiness if it was already present, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of diversification into a lot of different kinds of microenvironments. And then, you know, dispersal events between islands or island-like situations with regard to mountains in the tropics where you get, you know, isolation promoting divergence as well. Uh, and so, like in the case of, uh, in the case of like the dendrocinesios and stuff, I mean, so Mount Kenya is a, it's an, it's a really, really tall mountain, but it's on the equator. So it, it gets all the, you know, full sunlight that the equator gets, but the temperature is, is totally, is totally different. I mean, it's, you know, they're high up, huge yeah. fluctuations between day and night. Exactly. And how, how is this plant adapted to that? 
Yeah, that's a challenge. You know, they have to be able to handle really major diurnal extremes, like say between day and night. But what they don't have to deal with is seasonal uh, extremes. So basically, it's an aseasonal environment, a non-seasonal environment. But um, you know, it definitely has big fluctuations. So um, yeah, they have to be able to deal with temperature extreme variation on a 24-hour cycle rather than a seasonal cycle. And that's a big distinction, you know, from a lot of the temperate and boreal composites that are, um, you know, they're dealing with uh, environments that change through the year on a bigger scale. But yeah, in the case, I, I can't speak to the giant senecios per se, but it's interesting that they, you tend to get the rosette habit, you know, the like cabbage on a stock kind of a habit in right. those giant senecios. And um, it's been studied in the silver swords of Haleakala, where you get that rosette habit. And what the silver sword does is that uh, when you have that kind of rosette habit like that, the leaves surrounding, so you, when you have a rosette habit like that, you have one growing tip. You know, most plants have are branching and have, I mean, some of those Senecios branch, of course, but, um, each rosette basically has one growing tip right in the tip at the, at the center. And if you have that kind of rosette habit, the way the leaves can orient in the towards the tip is it'll it'll tend to um, orient um, sunlight and down towards the very tip of the plant. So if you go up to Haleakala on a really cold day, sun's out though, it's a cold day, and you put your finger right down into the rosette, right down to the growing tip, It'll be warm. Yeah. In, it'll be warm in there. So the way those leaves orient, they actually focus um, thermal energy down towards the tip of the the, the uh, rosette, and it keeps wow. that rosette from freezing. So they, and then they, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, so yeah, they they shelter their growing tips. You know that's important in that rosette habit. It's especially striking in the silver sword because they're covered in silvery hairs that are hyper reflective but um yeah that's a really amazing thing you know you can go out there and hand numbing cold and uh you know stick your finger down in there and it's warm that's um, crazy and it gets that cold up on top of those volcanoes in hawaii does. oh man yeah super cold it can snow up there jesus yeah. christ that's crazy and but they form like a skirt like in the dendrosinecia those old leaves kind of form a skirt along the uh, the trunk of the, the tree, I guess, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what might be the, if there are any advantages to that. But, um, yeah, you get a little bit of that kind of growth in some of the silver swords, too. But it's, uh, yeah, there's interesting diversity of plant architecture, for sure, in those things. A lot of different growth forms. I mean, the silver okay, so, swords are kind of the champions of growth form evolution and the composites as far as um, in terms of, you know, life form diversity, because you've got rosette plants, trees, shrubs, vines, you know, woody vines, uh, mat plants, uh, cushion plants. I mean, that's just off the charts in terms of... You know, all these different forms on the silver swords on Hawaii. So it's not just what you normally think of as those blue monocarpic plants you see on top of volcanoes. What are some of the other silver sword uh, uh, morphologies and habits that you see in Hawaii? 
Well, just growing, if you go up to Haleakala, just growing right next to the silver sword, commonly is one of the most common shrubs up there. It's Devoutia menziesii. And that's a, a, a strong, strongly branching shrub that doesn't cluster its leaves. They're, you know, they're dis dispersed across the stems. And um, that's part of the same radiation from a common ancestor there. And even though it's a fairly distant lineage from the silver swords, they do hybridize there in the crater. If you walk down the sliding sands trail from the summit of the crater down into the crater, um, even with casual looking around, you can spot the F1 hybrid, which is a crazy looking thing that branches and can get to be huge, but it has its leaves clustered towards the tips of the branches and they're more <laughs> elongate like a silver sword. Yeah, that's, that's insane crazy. looking. It's, yeah, I gotta yeah, make it. Yeah. I was gonna go there before. I was gonna go there before the pandemic struck, but you know, I've been kind of landlocked ever since. But you know, but yeah, you can actually take that plant and back cross it to the Devoutia menziesii parent. And with two <laughs> two generations of back crossing, Jerry Carr showed that you can generate individuals that look very similar to the Devoutia menziesii parent, and also are completely fertile. Uh, there is some reduction of fertility in the hybrid, but with two generations of back crossing, you've got yourself a fertile, um, pretty normal looking Dibaudium menziesii. Uh, wow. So that, that tells you that despite these extremely different morphologies and ecologies, there's probably a handful of genes that are responsible for these major morphological differences between these things. Um, probably a lot of regulatory genes that are involved in you know, whether or not the plant, um, whether the stem elongates or stays in a rosette, you know, that's probably one thing going on. There is some kind of regulation of the degree of stem elongation and branching. But uh, yeah, it might be a relatively small number of regulatory genes involved there that are, you know, responsible for a lot of the differences. Uh huh. I wanted to ask you about, I mean, I should ask you this at the beginning of the, the interview here, but talking about polyploidy, it's basically synonymous with whole genome duplication, correct? And why? That's right. Why is it so prevalent in, in Asteraceae and what effect has that had, do you think? I mean, it's to sum it up for anyone listening, polyploidy, of course, is having multiple copies of the same chromosome. Humans, of course, most animals are diploid, but plants can be polyploid and you know, in some cases have thousands of copies of the same chromosome. Uh, I guess get into that a bit with, with you know, composites. Yeah, you see that phenomenon, um, especially in the more ruderal lineages, uh, but also um, it's, it's, a, it's a type of, of chromosomal evolution you see across a lot of different groups in the family. It tends to be associated with a loss of self-incompatibility, although not always like the silver sword alliance we're talking about. Those are tetraploids that look like they became tetraploids shortly after the Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, shortly before they um, disperse to the Hawaiian Islands. So they have four chromosomes? They have four sets of chromosomes, yeah. In fact, we have pretty good evidence. It's published that uh, work that was <laughs> based out of Michael Prugenin's lab. And I was a, my lab collaborated with that with Rob Robichaud, where the... Uh, it looks like there are a couple of different lineages within the media lineage that were ancestral. So it was a hybridization event followed by genomic doubling, which commonly happens when you bring together lineages that are just divergent enough to form a hybrid and the chromosomes fail to pair during the first division of meiosis. And so you end up with spores and ultimately gametes that are um, diploid instead of haploid, and so you end up with a tetraploid. Um, this seems to have happened after hybridization in the group. And so a lot of polyploids are what we call allopolyploids, which means that they're polyploids of hybrid origin. And when you bring together two different genomes like that, that are evolutionarily divergent into one, um, in one place, you know, in one plant, you know, you have the potential to uh, express a lot of different, you know, the, your evolutionary potential could be enhanced in terms of, especially a situation where you're lacking in numbers of individuals, you know, if you're in a bottleneck situation, you could- It, it just, it, it kind of gives you more to work with, right? Exactly. So that you've got more, i.e. more possible mutations. Yeah, you have more copies of a gene. So- um, through differential silencing, say you silence one gene in one genome of one type and you silence another gene of a, in the other genome, you can end up essentially with a recombinant phenotype just by genomes, just by g- genetic silencing. And so, how, how does that work? How does, how does genetic silencing work? What, what dictates that? If, the, if that's not too big to get into right now. That's a pretty big topic, actually, but it's it's something that happens. And, you know, the more copies of a genome you have, the more buffered you are to um, any kind of um, disparity in dosage. So, you know, for us, if we, we only have two copies, you know, if we one of our gene copies goes out, you know, it could be a problem. But if you have four copies of a gene, then there's a lot more latitude. And plants are you know, unlike animals, they have open development and modular growth forms. So, you know, they have a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more permissiveness in terms of what can happen genetically without bad developmental consequences. So yeah, in plants, if you have multiple copies of a genome, um, you're freer to silence some or to have some diverge to a new function without causing a massive gene dosage problem that's going to lead to- What would a gene dosage problem be? Like, what would it look like? Give us an example, I guess. Well, I mean, one example would be like Down syndrome, 
um, you know, where, where you have an aneuploidy situation, um, you know, where you have an extra chromosome. So you have three instead of two uh, for one of the chromosomes. And, you know, that can lead to developmental problems. Um, you know, many of those kinds of problems would be fatal and you wouldn't even have manifestation of an animal genotype, human, or human phenotype, because it wouldn't make it, you know, to birth. But uh, so, yeah, if you have an imbalance in your gene dosage, it can lead to pretty serious consequences. But those consequences uh -huh. become less the more copies of the genome you have, you know, the more copies of the genome, gene or genome that you have, you know, having one of them knocked out is less of an overall change in your overall gene dosage than it would be if you had fewer copies. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it all has to do with the, how, the, how the chromosomes split during meiosis, basically? Well, there's that too, you know. I mean, um, polyploidization also comes along with some meiotic challenges, you know, in terms of whether the chromosomes pair in a way that's going to result in balanced uh, meiotic cell divisions afterwards, where every daughter cell gets the appropriate number of chromosomes of each type. But that tends to sort out evolutionarily pretty fast. Yeah, you know, there's super strong selection to for that on that process. Um, and so you tend to see that the polyploids will behave like diploids in terms of their chromosome division and meiosis. But then they also start to be diploidized in terms of their actual genetic content. So you tend to see like more gene silencing happening. And uh, that leads to, like we say, all kinds of potential for differential silencing leading to unusual new phenotypes, you know, new variants. and. So yeah, polyploidization has a, I mean, one, there are a lot of things that come along with it that make it hard to figure out exactly how important it's, polyploidization itself is to the success of the lineage, as opposed to something that's carried along with it. Like um, yeah. a lot of times polyploidization comes along with a loss of self-incompatibility. It didn't happen in the case of the Silver Sword Alliance, but it, it happens frequently and uh, if you become self-compatible, then, you know, that opens up the possibility of becoming a weedier plant, being able to disperse um, more readily into areas because you can self with yourself, you know, you can mate with yourself. And so you can, you only need one seed to start a population. So a lot of these lineages that have taken off and become widespread, like in the tarweed, California tarweed group, the most widespread lineages, or I should say the the vast majority of the widespread lineages in North America are selfers, and those also happen to be polyploids, where it's possible the okay. self-compatibility, you know, came along with the polyploidization. So, you know, they can look pretty so successful. Do you, does 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 polyploidy then <clears throat> is it somewhat synonymous with being self-compatible or no? Well, um, they go along. I mean, the polyploidization often breaks down the self-incompatibility. Not always. It gets though. rid of it. Yeah, yeah, they often become self-compatible um, as a result. Oh, they, of they often be, they become self-compatible. Yeah, it's a byproduct of the polyploidization. That happens, but it's, I mean, that's a frequent outcome, but it's not a necessary outcome. So, that, right. yeah, you're right. That's often weediness and um, 
and even the, the ability to tolerate uh, cold climates can come along with that, although sometimes that's not well correlated. Um, but the tarweeds are probably ployed, but they're self-incompatible, you said? The silver sword alliance, yeah, they're they're the silver swords. Sorry. Yeah, they're tetraploids, yeah. um, but they're self-incompatible. Except for uh, there are there there is a derived lineage to Badioscabra that's self-compatible, but that's uh -huh. that's gone into a pioneer type of ecology where it's one of the first um, one of the first colonizers of young lava flows, and especially Pahoehoe lava flows. So that one has, uh, you know, there's probably selection to lose its self incompatibility. Um, being a God, what is it going to be like, man, growing on a, a lava flow with no soil and black rock that heats up in the sun? No kidding, it's an amazing thing. And but you know, when you actually take a a pressure bomb and look at the um, water potential of those things, they're not under that much water stress. I mean, not much drought stress. Mm -hmm. And what's <laughs> what's going on? Is, yeah, what's going on with those? It appears Rob Robichaud figured this out. Is that that Pahoehoe lava actually has quite a lot of um, water? There, there appears to be quite a lot of water at depth under Pahoehoe, unlike under Aa flows. You know the rough. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll believe that. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, because it's still pouring. Yeah, yeah, and so the exactly, and so the um, despite appearances. <laughs> You know, the Pohoehoe seems like it's actually not as water stressful a habitat as the adjacent Aa flows, where there's a different Dabadia growing right within a stone's throw, sometimes within like a, a hand spread, you know, just a, just a few inches. Um, you get these Pohoehoe and Aa flows that are overlapping. You have Dabadia ciliolata growing on the Aa, Dabadia scabra growing on the Pohoehoe, and their F1 hybrid growing in the seams between those 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 lava flows right in the crack between those where they meet you'll get the, the f1 hybrid that that's something we should talk about too because that's obviously that has to do with the the rock daisies what isaac studies and yeah but you see this with a lot of fucking composites they're growing out of rock man there's no there's no soil <laughs> how does that happen like how are they that seems inconceivable to anyone who's not familiar with desert plants or plants in general. I mean, and even then, it's still like, how the fuck did they do this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's an amazing capability. I mean, it's certainly a limited capability when you see, when you get to these kinds of barren rock faces, you're not seeing the kind of uh, plant diversity that you'd see otherwise. And it's often things that are specially adapted. Um, you know, that really is, I mean, they can find water down in those, in cracks and in, in seams like that, but they're, um, you know, it's a super challenging environment. And, you know, it, is there a way, that they, is there a way that they just kind of reach a stasis where they're not evapotranspiring? They're not taking anything in, but they're not losing anything too. I mean, is that, is there any reality to that or yeah, what? They have to find that balance, you know, they just have to, because otherwise they'll, they'll die for sure. I mean, they, so they're, 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 the stomata are, you know, very finely regulated. So if the root starts undergoing any water stress, you know, that's going to send a signal right away to the leaves. And the abscisic acid, this plant hormone, um, is involved in that response. And it'll result in the stomata closing and, you know, shutting off the ability to lose water through those leaves. You know, they need to have those pores open to bring in CO2 to 
to fix carbon, you know, to make glucose, but um, to photosynthesize, but they they also have to be super careful about that. And so they're, they have super fine regulation of uh, stomata. So they, once those stomata are closed up, you know, there's a lot less potential for losing water to the environment, you know, with the thick uh -huh. cuticle and all. But uh, yeah, there was a, there was a plant I saw in uh, New Mexico last year growing on a, a lava flow, like pretty recent lava flow, a few thousand years old. And it was all black basalt. It was, uh, I mean, I originally I deed it as Amoriopsis pedata, but I guess that tax, that taxon's inactive now. Now it's Hymenothrix pedata. But right. this thing, same thing, it's growing on black lava flows. And it must be so incredibly hot in the summer, so much heat coming off of it. And no soil whatsoever. I mean, the thing was just growing up directly out of the rock. Yeah, a lot of times leaf orientation is one way that plants can help to deal with that kind of a problem. You know, if they orient their leaves in a way that reduces the interception of, of sunlight or heat, they can um, get around some of those potential. I mean, that it helps to deal with it, but it's, you know, there have to be, you know, there has to be a multi-pronged, set of uh you know adaptations to deal with environments like that i mean look at the, the rock daisies uh you know they basically they figured out how to live in those environments and then they diversified across those environments throughout the desert southwest and been super successful right. but it's you know once you can crack the nut you know and once you have an adaptation that allows you to live in those extreme situations you know, that can potentially open the, you know, the window to a lot of diversification in those settings because you don't have much in the way of competitors. Right, because the field, yeah, the field, <clears throat> the field is yours. So you've exactly. got a blank canvas. So on that note, let's talk about the Helianthia Alliance because I'm still, I'm kind of unclear as to what, what exactly it is. And it's so huge in North America. There's so many, I mean, you've got ambrosias, which look other fucking worldly and, you know, have a really distinct floral habit. And then yeah. you've got, you know, all these other weird plants. Uh, what is the Helianthia Alliance? Yeah, so the Helianthia Alliance is a, we're, is a term that's been coined to take in what some people now call the Helianthoidae. You know, I mean, if you want to treat it that as a subfamily, but I think that's um, maybe, go I mean, that the Helianthia Alliance is a term that's used a little bit uh, more loosely to refer to the alliance of tribes that used to be treated within the Helianthae tribe. But what we found, or what I didn't find this out, but it was discovered, was that uh, what we used to call the Helianthe, the sunflower tribe, actually includes members of another couple of tribes. So what used to be called the Helenae, the sneezeweed tribe, is right, right. Yeah, members of those are. Were things that were that's what we worked on was trying to figure out where do these helenioid things fall out it turned out they were scattered all over the place within the phylogeny of the sunflower tribe but even more surprisingly the eupatorii the eupatorium tribe turned out to be nested way up in the um, phylogeny of the sunflower tribe in the helianthe and uh, that's where a lot of people just backed away from the idea of trying to accommodate all, you know, if it had just been the Helenae that was nested within the sunflower tribe, people would have said, okay, let's sink the Helenae. 
and we'll just have a big sun, bigger sunflower tribe. But the Upatori is a tribe with over 2,000 species. Yeah, it's fucking massive, it's man. Amazing. It's like the stevias, the agratinas, you know, you especially see the, you know, the Upatoria when you get out of, uh, when you get like east of the 100th parallel. That's when they start. I mean, God, I saw, what is that one? I just saw one here in Texas. It didn't even look like a composite. I thought it was like a weedy asparagus. I, th I thought it was a monocot. It's got like filamentous foliage. It's, uh, what is it, Upatorium? Capriliform or one of those. I forget the I forget the species name. I have to check behind it. But it's such a weird looking one. But then sure enough, when it, it's in flower, you see those distinctive uh long styles, those hair like styles poking out yeah, of each get those weird You're like, oh my yeah. god. It's a Eupatoria. Yeah, really how, how is this? I love seeing stuff like that because it, it blows your mind. You're like, how is this a fucking Eupat this is the weirdest modification and how does this evolve what caused this like what environmental stresses was it just random you know so that get into eupatoria because that's huge in the new world i mean yeah. this is a really weird yeah one. it's a bizarre it's a strange story because i mean it was hard to believe at first and uh you know more and more phylogenetic information came in and now it's refined enough um I mean, the most recent big phylogeny of the family by Jennifer Mandel and, and uh, colleagues placed it pretty firmly now in one of the places it was coming out in the early analyses. And that's sister to none other than the rock daisy tribe. So the Pritalee seems to be sister to the Eupatoriae. That's so weird. Yeah, yeah. The Pritalee is, uh, you know, by comparison, not a very diverse tribe. I mean, it's an impressive radiation on cliff faces and rocky habitats mostly in general but in terms of overall numbers of taxa you know it doesn't come anywhere close to the eupatoria which is massive by comparison with most of the closely related lineages to it so one thing the eupatoria has done that really goes against the grain of what we tend to see in the new world is that well in general in flowering plant evolution what we tend to see when we look at plant evolution is that we see all these temperate families and temperate clades evolving out of, and if you go far enough back, they're coming out of tropical groups. So we've had this, you know, polar migration of lineages out of the tropics. Um, but the Eupatoria have done exactly the opposite. You know, they've come from a group that uh, in the Helianthi that's, you know, not, not exactly boreal, but it's at least, um, temperate or subtemperate, and it's gone back into the tropics um, and accompanying that, you know, a lot of diversification. So, you know, they've gone towards a more tropical environment and, uh, you know, certainly diversified as well in areas outside the tropics. But, um, you know, we see a lot of diversity in the subtropical and tropical environments in that group. You know what it is right. about, yeah. What it is about those guys that has resulted in this wacky, you know, return to hotter, um, you know, more tropical conditions. I don't know, but there's something about that tribe that's, you know, it kind of is a rule breaker, and uh, and it's really worked for it. You know, it's just amazingly diverse. And so it, it's it's thought that it started in the or it originated in the temperate latitudes and then went down to the crowd how old is it thought to be not nearly as old as we might have guessed before i mean the 
helianthi radiation is fairly apical within the phylogeny of the composite. Um, a precise date on that split, I couldn't tell you exactly, but you know we're dealing with a group that's uh, much younger than you would think based on its diversity. So it's, um, you know, it's probably, you know, it's certainly post Miocene, or you know, it's it's a group that would have diversified in the area of around mid Cenozoic, a little later. Um, could be um, thirty million or something. Uh, probably less. Probably less. Wow. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Than that, but uh, yeah, so we're probably talking about Miocene divergence. So I can't remember the precise dates on that clade, but you know, it's nested way up there. And so we're talking about a group that's closest relatives are mostly in the desert Southwest. And those desert-like environments are fairly young. You know, they're mostly mid-Miocene and later. So we're talking like 15 million years or later. Uh, so, you know, we're talking oh, about... Oh, you mean desert, desert environments in North America? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the playing field for this over, group, you know, the Upatori or, you know, a new world coming out of, the, coming out of that, that desert southwest or that sub, sort of subtropical, at the, you know, at the, you could call it type of environment and going down to a more tropical environment. So what do you, when you, let's get into that a little bit. When you talk about the deserts being relatively young, what do you mean by that? And what, what caused the deserts to, to, what caused the birth of them in North America? Yeah, the deserts are, are fairly young. And uh, of course, modern desert conditions are super young. We have, you know, evidence from pack rat middens that the, the deserts as they are today, you know, have only really come into being since the end of the Pleistocene, just in the last 12,000 years. I mean, certainly those lineages are a lot older than that in most cases, but um, yeah, the deserts have been really dynamic over time in terms of their extent and their conditions. But um, it was really around uh, in the Oligocene you know, you start to get a pretty serious drying trend. Right, but it's like it, 30 million years ago, right? Exactly, but then later, uh, around 15 million years ago at mid-Miocene, with the growth of the polar ice caps, changes in ocean circulation patterns, you start to get a very different situation in uh, the West. And you also have the orogeny of the Rocky Mountains. And you start to get these rain shadows and also uh, cold currents offshore, and it leads to a much drier environment. And around 15 million years ago, you see 
a massive shift in Western North America, in much of it at least, towards um, conditions that supported plants that probably, um, you know, based on where their modern relatives live, you know, we're getting most of their rainfall in the summertime. And uh, to, to flora, you know, just in some places within a couple hundred thousand years where you're getting, uh, you know, plants that are occurring there that today we'd associate with climates where less, you know, around a third at most of, of uh, overall precipitations happening in the summertime. Right, and, yeah. I, I remember finding, you know, all giant sequoia fossils and camisippers fossils, you know, east of, of Sparks, Nevada, in what is now like a totally high, dry desert. You know, there's no way it yeah. could support any large woody growth aside from cottonwoods growing in the creeks there, you know? Right, right, yeah. So so the deserts, yeah, they've really come into their own in the last, especially in the last 15 million years or so. You know, that's an evolutionary eye blank for plants compared, when you look at how many lineages were already in place by that time, you know, the fam most of the families were, uh, their diversifications were pretty far along at that point, you know, in modern families. Uh -huh. And so, uh, you know, the cacti coming into the Southwest and all, you know, they're definitely an older family overall, but they, um, you know, are really making their play in a big way, you know, when you get around mid-Miocene and later. Right, and right. You really start to get these more extreme desert conditions evolving. But down in Chile, the, like the Atacama is really old, right? It's like, that's a much older desert. There are definitely a lot older deserts in different parts of the world. The Australian deserts, some of those are very old. Um, but yeah, North America, at least, you know, the <laughs> deserts that give rise to our, our desert uh, composites and other desert flora, uh -huh. you know, pretty, pretty recent events uh, climatologically. Not to say that some of those lineages weren't around and were pre-adapted to dry conditions, you know, there are pockets of dry conditions here and there, but to get the extent, you know, of desert habitat that would allow for, you know, really big radiations of desert plants, you know, that's um, a later development. How, how, hey, how much, how much time do you got left? Cause I got, a, I got a couple more questions I want to ask you if you're cool with it, like 20 minutes. Can you, can you do that? I'll try, you know, I, 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 uh, I just lectured right before this. And my voice isn't that oh, strong. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. Then I'm sorry. I, I I apologize for. No, no, I set it up that way because I get my blood up for lecturing to 600 students, and and it takes the adrenaline a while to come down. So right, right. You know, I'm just <laughs> trying to write out the last little dribs and drabs of that. So, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep this as brief as possible. Uh, really quick about Eupatorium. How would you know if you saw an, a composite? How would you know that it was Eupatoriae tri tribe upon looking at it? How would you? What, yeah. what morphological characteristics would tell you that? Well, you mentioned one of them: those club-shaped style branch appendages, those big elongate style branch appendages that tend to be uh, club-shaped. They tend to be broader towards the tip than they are at the base. You know, Aster tribe does kind of pretty nice long style branch appendages too, but they tend to taper. Um, so there's that. There's also one of the funniest things about the Eupatorii that's totally bizarre. You know, we talk about damn yellow composites. 
DYCs, you know, the people that don't like them tend to say that because so many of them are yellow. <laughs> but you don't really get true yellows in the Upatori, not the deep yellows. You can get some faint kind of yellowish greens and uh, off yellows, kind of yellow white, but you never get the deep yellow Corolla coloration. You get all kinds of colors in the um, the Corollas of Upatori, but not white, pink, purple. Yeah, you get all those colors, but you don't tend to get the color that everybody associates with the family, you know, those deep yellows or goldens or anything like that. And they also, of course, have uh, discoid heads, so you don't get the ray flowers in, in Eupatory. They're discoid right, um, sure. across the bed. And then uh, they also tend to have a pappus of bristles. They have a pappus of bristles. Um, Unlike, you know, they don't have scaly pappuses or, you know, awns or things like that attached to the tops of their fruits, but generally pretty fine bristles. Uh -huh. um, some of them can be flattened bristles, you know, that some people might call a, you know, a, a scale, a, a subulate scale or something like that, but they're definitely bristle-like pappus yeah. elements. Um, so those things, those are some of the, those are the things that that come to mind immediately as being pretty characteristic of that tribe. What would be, moving on to another huge, you know, at least in North America, the ambrosias, man, what, what's up with those? They're wind pollinated. Doesn't seem like yeah. many composites are wind pollinated. They've got a yeah. flower spike with the, you know, the, at least the ambrosia genus does. Iva doesn't, oh, do yeah. it, but ambrosia does. They've got the female flower at the bottom yeah. and the male flowers at the top, they're all wind pollinated. Iva, you know, you don't get that distinction between male and female, between staminate and pistillate. You've got, you know, each each flower each capitulum, each flower head is bisexual. It's got both florets in it. But right. how did that yeah. what's the history of that purported to be? I mean it's yeah, mostly new world, right? Yeah, there's a lot of new world diversity. It's a tribe that's actually super closely or subtribe it's actually treated as a subtribe ambrosiony um so it's a finer scale group than a tribe and it's nested it's part of the helianthi alliance and it's super closely related to the helianthini which is the subtribe that includes helianthus and these other relatives like the gara and various um groups that have the flag-like uh, ray flowers that don't have pistillate function. Uh -huh. So that whole, if you look at their foliage and their involucres, in some of them at least, they look very, or at least the foliage and leaves, but not the involucres, the foliage looks very similar to Helianthus in many cases, and they are very closely related. It looks like with that shift, whatever triggered that shift to wind pollination, which um, you know is an advantageous thing if you live in open habitats and you have large populations. Um, it can be uh, in windy habitats, especially and if pollinators are limiting. <laughs> that uh, that shift, however that shift happened, just led to this radical reorganization of the capitulum or the capitula, you know, the heads and these things. And so when you look at the actual foliage of these things, they look really similar to the closely related um, sunflower subtribe, Helianthini, 
but you know they couldn't be more different in terms of their capitula like you mentioned they're so but, you, know, you see that they're so, so weird. weird but whenever you look at any group of flowering plants that shifted to wind pollination they just radically reorganized their floral characteristics i mean like look at plantago it's nested within the plantagenaceae which is mostly comprised of what we used to call the scrofulariaceae. Right. All these things with bilabiate corollas. Penstemon. You know, yeah, penstemon, you know, those things, things like that, that don't look remotely similar to them in terms of their flowering, um, you know, their flowers and their inflorescences. But the once you make that shift to wind pollination, it can cause this cascade of changes. You know, the selection is going to change so dramatically that these things that we think must be really hardwired and hard to change just completely um, reorganize. So natural selection is a powerful force <laughs> in terms of stabilizing selection, holding things yeah. together. And then, you know, divergent selection, causing things to shift and then just, you know, this cascade of things that goes along with that. So if you look at a lot of wind pollinated trees, you know, they all look pretty similar, even if they're distantly related. And we used to think that they represented this group that everybody, the Hamamelody subfamily used to be this incredible um, dumping ground for all these lineages that turn out to be really distantly related that are wind pollinated. But it turns out, you know, it's just whenever you go for wind pollination, you end up following a certain evolutionary trajectory and the selection just takes you down that path. Now, nobody's going to mistake ambrosiony for, uh, you know, <laughs> an oak or something like that, but still, you know, they've really reorganized in an amazing way. It's such a huge thing to go from, you know, I mean, just the restructuring you've got to do from having, you know, relying on insects to disperse your seed or your pollen to then just dumping it out in droves. Uh, and becoming yeah but when, when you mentioned sunflowers you said flag like ray flowers uh, explain what you mean by that in sunflowers the ray flowers are are staminate or, or no sterile or what do you mean by that they're sterile yeah they're neuter they're sterile so they just are only functioning as a flag to pollinators their corollas are um, really the last thing that's functioning there in terms of a a structure that has a obvious function at least in terms of attracting pollinators to the head but you know they don't have any sexual expression at all well i never really uh, i guess i never really realized that but i mean yeah if you you know next time i'm around a field of sunflowers i'll dissect the head and, and take a look at it but yeah they just have a nubbin of an ovary and and oftentimes in the members of that subtribe there's no style at all coming out of the ray flower wow. you know you can most you might find a vestige of a style but um there's not a functional style there and usually no evidence of it and so with that's the other thing we should talk about again another thing i should have asked you about at the uh, beginning of the the podcast but explain what that anther column is it's it's inward facing anthers which are all fused to a a tube that the style pushes out of correct yeah, so the anthers themselves are fused by their margins into a cylinder. And then they have introrse dehiscence of the anthers, which means they're releasing their pollen towards the center. So they're releasing the pollen towards the style, which grows up through that anther cylinder. And so then the pollen, you know, as it, or the style as it grows up there, 
it either pumps or, or brushes that pollen up through there. And then the pollen, you know, clings to the outside of the style. Um, and uh, eventually, once it comes all the way out, of course, you know, then the style branches spread apart. There are two style branches that are held together until that point where they fully emerge and then they spread. And the stigmatic surfaces where the pollen germinates are on the inner side of those style branches. So those have been protected from the pollen by being um, closed up. You know, the two branches have been held together until they emerge. I mean, clearly, you know, those pollen's very close to those stigmatic areas and can right. easily be brushed over to the inner surface and come in contact with it. But it it does allow for the secondary pollen presentation, which just means that the that the pollen's being presented not by the anthers but themselves, but by the style. Right, right. Um, it's a, yeah, yeah. And then so, but in the case of the ambrosiani we were just talking about, you know, the wind pollinated composites in that group, they bring you know, we 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 call composite specialists and anthropologists in the field of the study of composites. Right, fused anther. It's called Right, fused anther, but that doesn't hold for the ambrosiani. They have free anthers, and uh, no, you know, so they've even broken the most, you know, fundamental rule of the family, <laughs> wow. and uh, become free anthered again. These fused anthers um, are do they are there filaments there, or even vestigial filaments, or what? Yeah, the filaments are free. So right below the anthers, that you can you have five filaments. That run down and attach to the inside of the corolla lobe. They're hard to see. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I've, I've never, I don't think I've even ever gotten that close. So, yeah. You have to do a dissection to see that. Um, yeah. And some of the tribes have tailed anthers that actually have these sterile tails coming off the, each anther lobe that can look like filaments too, that uh, actually turn out to be really helpful for diagnosing those particular tribes. You know, some of them. Some plants, like in the um, Inula tribe, Inulae, uh, they look so much like members of the Aster tribe, the Asterii, um, that they're easily confused. And uh, you might have to go all the way down to looking for those style, those uh, tails, those sterile tails on the anthers to be able to say, okay, this is an Aster tribe. They never have the tails on the anthers, but the Inula tribe, which is an old world tribe, uh, does have those, uh -huh. um, but yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Some of those characteristics are super cryptic, but they're phylogenetically useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're useful for identifying the. What 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 do ambrosia free anthers look like if they're not fused into a tube? They look more like typical anthers. Look like typical stamens. Wow. Um, you know, it's yeah, they're. There's just no reason for that secondary pollen presentation mechanism anymore. The plants, you know, need to, to you know, get their stamens out there into the wind and and send out, you know, send the pollen airborne. So, um, you know, it's behooves it behooved them evolutionarily to do away with that feature, which would be super disadvantageous, you know, to be releasing your pollen into the center of a cylinder. You right. want the wind to carry it away. Right, right. And also, you know, they, they did away with sticky pollen too. So the pollen, you know, an in po insect pollinated plants tends to be oily and adherent, you know. So it'll, it adheres, it adheres to an animal body, whereas wind pollen needs to be dry. And it's also not ornamented 
wind pollen tends to be smooth walled, doesn't have spines on the outside, doesn't have ridges and valleys. It's just has a smooth, dry exterior that makes it much more conducive to separating and you know being carried in the wind. Yeah, Jesus Christ. So, so going back to secondary pollen presentation, I mean that's not just something that the sunflower family does. You know, Proteaceae kind of does that too, but uh, which is completely unrelated. But but going back to the sunflower family and, and the Asterales, the order, a lot of plant families do that secondary pollen presentation thing, correct? I mean, Goudiniaceae, uh, Com right. Campanulaceae, what's up with that? Is that, you think that's a synapomorphy that they all share? It's like a derived from like a ancestral condition? Oh, I think it order or definitely, what, it certainly uh, didn't evolve within the sunflower family. It, I mean, the presence of that feature in Chlyceraceae and, and Asteraceae is certainly due to shared common ancestry. And even um, deeper than that, it likely is as well. I mean, that, that character isn't completely uniform through the Asterales there, um, but it, it does have, you know, there's enough, it, it's very possible that it's been lost in, in various lineages like it was in the Ambrosiani. But, um, yeah, that's a characteristic that helps to diagnose a deeper clade than just the family composite. Have you have you studied Goudiniaceae much at all? Because they've got that they've got like this squeegee looking thing that yeah. pops out and what is it? They've got an, it's called an enthusiasm or something like. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I haven't studied that family per se, but it's a super interesting family. And it's a big player in Hawaiian plant evolution, too. Skivala um, is one of the real champs as far as dispersing to the Hawaiian Islands three different times uh, independently. It's one of the only genera there that's been that's the result of three different introductions, you know, that many introductions. Yeah. And as one of those is diversified a lot, but yeah, I can't speak to the, you know, the precise details of the, of the pollen presentation there. Yeah. But it's, um, seeing them all over. It's a close relative. Yeah. See, yeah, I'm it's a close see, relative of the composite. I remember seeing them all over Australia, like really cool, weird ones. Oh my God. Stylidium is in Astorales too. I forgot that. Oh yeah, that's that the stylidiaceae and made the trigger plants. Yeah, fuck. There's all that, weird, those <laughs> weird variations. Yeah, yeah. That's a topic for a whole other podcast. Yeah, I mean, such an amazing family. Those can place their pollen um, in many different parts. You know, they have you have a lot of sympatry in that 
in Stylidium, where in Western Australia you can find several species growing in the same habitat. Yeah, and they, they place their pollen in it. Yeah, they they have that incredible trigger on their um, in their pollination mechanism that if you look at it in slow motion, it just looks like it would beat the crap out of the pollinators. <laughs> you know, they hit hits them so hard; it's really impactful. But it hits them in different different species place the pollen in different places on the pollinator. Um, so there's some really cool divergence in terms of um, pollen placement. And But yeah, they're all pretty violent, or a lot of them at least are pretty violent in the way that they they place pollen on their pollinators. They're so weird. Pollen I forgot that was asked. Yeah. yeah. Damn. yeah. Who's the Silenium guy? Isn't there? My friend Matt Ritter told me there was some guy that studies those and grows them. He's in California, I think, but. Well, my colleague, Scott Armbruster, um, who I've collaborated with since I've, uh, well, since I first became a professor, but not on Stylidium, he's a pollination ecologist and he's done really remarkable work on the pollination ecology in Australia. <laughs> and uh, he's an amazing guy in terms of um, pollination biology in general, but He's done a lot of the work on, on Australian stylidium as well, and, uh, or at least, and uh, he's he's definitely a guy that would be worth talking to at some point. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to get at him, man. They're cool. All right, lastly, and then and then you're free to go after this. I really appreciate your time, but uh, uh, no I guess this is kind of two questions. You know, I'm obsessed with the Silphium subtribe, the Anglomaniinae, and uh, you know, yeah. Silphium laciniatum and Silphium albiflorum, a Texas endemic. You know, I'm in Texas right now. There's a, I don't know what it is about those. It's, you know, they've got these huge flowers, you know, for the, rest of the, for the rest of the family. They're super distinct. You've got Berlandiera too. And they've all got, well, I guess we were email, emailing about this. Not all of them have this, but most of them do. They've got those, you know, only the marginal florets produce seeds. The disc florets are, are dysfunctionally staminate, I guess, right? Like they like the disc florets right, produce right. pollen, but but not seeds. What and, and you had emailed me. I wish I had it in front of me, but you you put it beautifully. Like you you put into a you know, that's nice synopsis. The benefit of of having of having those. I mean, how did that evolve, and what is the what's the point? I mean, that, that's a group that's mostly in, in the center of the continent, or what? Yeah, there's a lot of Engelmanniae in the, um, yeah, in the in the uh, central and southwestern part of the continent, but it gets up into other habitats as well, and it's pretty widespread in um, North America. But yeah, this this feature of of staminate functional disc flowers, where there is no pistillate function in the central disc flowers, that's something that evolves multiple times, and you see this in um, strongly outcrossing taxa, and uh, probably because, you know, if you have both pistillate and staminate function in the in the central disc flowers, you have the potential to um, to self quite a bit, or at least to contaminate the stigmas of your disc flowers with self pollen, because you know they're producing pollen from those flowers as well as trying to set seed from those flowers. But if you restrict your pistillate function just to the ray flowers around the perimeter of the head, which are all pistillate unless they're neuter in some few groups, uh -huh. um, 
you're separating the sexual function spatially across the head. So the central part of the head then just has a staminate function and the marginal flowers around the periphery have a pistillate function. And so you get the benefits of um, hercogamy, which is the spatial separation of, of anthers and stigmas. So it promotes outcrossing. Um, it promotes outcrossing, yeah. So these it definitely does. These marginal florets are not staminate then, correct? That's right. Yeah, ray flowers are never staminate, just strictly either pistillate or neuter. Okay, so, so and, and in the case of helianthus, the ray flowers are neither. They're just they're neither they're neuter. neuter. Yeah, they're neuter. Yeah, they're sterile. Yeah. Are there any helianthus? Are there any taxa in Asteraceae where the ray flowers produce pollen or no? No, that's if it happens, it's a total aberration. It's wow. it's a it's not a typical expression. It's it's a um, yeah. That there aren't very many rules that the composite follow very closely, or you know, without exception. But I don't know an I don't know of a case where a ray flower produces pollen. But that's where it actually it, has staminate function. That's one rule they all play by: is no <laughs> no pollen in your ray flowers, no pollen in your ligulate flowers. Right, right. That's at least that's if it's not an absolute law. It's a pretty firm rule. Wow. Wow, that's cool. You know, I mean, biology is the science of exceptions. Right. And, you know, and, uh, you know, there, there are always exceptions like, you know, that come up. But I don't know a single exception to that. And I've spoken to, you know, various synanthrologists about this. And in all the resources that I've ever examined and any plants I've examined, I've seen no evidence of a ray flower that's been, I mean, where you get a typical expression of of an andresium you know that functions and to produce pollen yeah 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 that's <laughs> that's that's pretty cool man and then lastly you know since we're talking about yeah. silphium you know i i saw silphium terebinthinaceum the, the prairie dock which is an illinois native uh and that blew my mind i mean just you know leaves that were three feet long in some cases and then it sends up this you know 12 foot tall scape of uh yeah, flower. I mean, just the coolest variation, and then God knows what the root looks like. Probably massive, and the roots probably go fifteen yeah. feet down. Um, but uh, in some of these silphiums, like silphium laciniatum, you get these leaves that are just like sandpaper, man. They're so scabrous, you know. I mean, they feel that they have that like shark skin, cat's tongue feeling to them. Yeah. What What is that? I mean, what that? Obviously, it's not going to be nice to chew on. But is there another benefit of that texture? Not that I'm aware of. I think it probably does have a lot to do with herbivory. <laughs> um, I mean, that kind of scabrosity is probably not enough to, I mean, you can, it can affect boundary layer um, depth. I mean, there are other For humidity functions and transpiration. That, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there are things like that that, that uh, you know the, the leaf vestiture can provide, or you know reflectance if it happens to be light colored enough, if the scabrosity you know imparts a lighter. Um, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, good. I heard a weird thing. Uh, yeah. So there are other possibilities, but um, yeah, I think your initial hunch there, you're probably onto something with regards to the, you know, the palatability. But, uh, they've all got, they call those the rosin weeds too. They've got like, I mean, they smell like conifers, the sap that comes out of them. 
Yeah, the chemistry of composites is so amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever smelled the leaves of Holcia. Holcia is a, a, a genus that I love and we're, we've been studying it for years. Oh, yeah, Holcia leaves, really? sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Holcias tend to have amazing resonance compounds that smell just incredibly conifer-like. Railardella, a group of composites, um, actually an early lineage in the tarweeds, which is also more of a montane group, also has those um, has a lot of resinous compounds that, uh, yeah, I mean, those are, in, that's intense biochemistry. Um, when we tried to extract DNA out of plants that have odors like that, you know, it can often be challenging. You have to include a binding agent to bind up some of the secondary compounds in order to get good DNA. Wow. A lot of times or to get any kind of yield. That's fucking nuts. But yeah, yeah, there's also, there's the chemistry is super interesting and I, um, you know, it's too bad that biochemistry is not studied as much as it used to be. Oh you know, that used to be a set of characters that taxonomists would really try to utilize, but it turned out to be there's so much convergent evolution in terms of the, you know, so much selection on those compounds that you can get you know, different biochemical pathways in many cases can give you the same compound so you get a lot of convergence yeah, oh yeah, I believe in the that. evolution. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it turned out that taxon plant taxonomists tend to largely abandon secondary chemistry as a a topic, you know, to look for phylogenetically useful differences. But it's still so to understand the ecology. Yes. Yeah, to study the ecology is super <laughs> important and, and to study the evolution too, just in terms of you know, the characteristics of the plants that have led to their success in different environments or the, or how about the, super important. How about the pharmacology, too? I mean, the ethnobotany of so many members of composites. I mean, are there any, you know, of any, like, drugs or pharmaceuticals that are based on compounds and, and asters? Oh, yeah. Well, Arnica is a super, um, you know, Arnica is the sister group to the tarweeds and silver swords. And that's something we discovered back around 2000. And, uh, you know, it used to be placed in the Senecianae for a long time. It was a wild card genus, but it turns out to be pretty closely related. I mean, sister to the tarweeds and silver swords. And um, Arnica Montana, you know, is definitely a source of really powerful anti-inflammatory compounds that, um, you know, are used by professional athletes to try to deal with bruises and, you know, contusions and things like that. I mean, there is some efficacy there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, uh, I'm sure there must be a lot of medicinal qualities that just aren't utilized as much as they could be. You know, so much indigenous knowledge has been lost, right. but there must have been an amazing, you know, pharmacopoeia involving members of the family. Oh, God, man, I know. I was, I was reading about uh, the people here where I am in the Rio Grande Valley right now, and the, they, you know, Europeans just all lump them into a Cohiltec, they call them, like Cohila. But, you know, there were so many different tribes. And I was just at some guy's property mm -hmm. like four days ago. He's got like a massive peyote clump that he's been taking care of. And he's, you know, licensed with the mm -hmm. NAC, the Native American Church. And, you know, all over his land. I mean, I found a stone tool on his land. These, you know, it was a, a piece of shirt that was quite obviously chipped and was a scraper tool or, you know, used to get flakes off of. And I just think about, you know, the, the people there, so little, so little is, so little knowledge is left, you know, like they were just, 
they either assimilated into Mexico or they were just wiped out, you know, so. Yeah, and I don't blame the ones that the, the indigenous people that retain that knowledge, you know, for not being very um, anxious to share. Right. It, you know? <laughs> totally, because, man. You know, I mean, if the, you know, it's not. There hasn't been a lot of reciprocation. Like no, that. man, not at all. I wouldn't. You I know? wouldn't share shit, man. <laughs> I would be like, no, you guys don't yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, you know, and there's also a lot of feelings. I mean, there's definitely a sensibility, I think, in some indigenous cultures that, you know, that to some extent the that knowledge is privileged and and the you know having it be privileged knowledge is important in its efficacy. You know, there's all kinds of thinking about that. Right. So, Various, you know, there probably is a lot more known out there than, than um, you know, migrates into the scientific literature. For sure. But, and they were the original, you know, yeah. scientists studying that stuff, the original pharmacologists. So. Well, yeah, not, not just that, but also the original agriculturists of the New World that developed so many amazing crops that we all just take for granted today. Right. You know, the same, you know, the society that, treats um, indigenous peoples, you know, uh, as, you know, with no respect at the same time, takes for granted all the hard work and and careful, you know, genetic, I mean, the careful plant breeding that resulted in so many important um, agricultural products that, you know, we all use. I was so, reading about, I was reading about them last night and I'll wrap this up soon, but I think one thing that strikes me you know, and and it's hard because there's so much people fetishize Native Americans so much in this culture. They're always talking about, oh yeah, the Native people, and especially herbalists. You get talk, herbalists talking about, well, no, I can do this because, you know, this is indigenous wisdom and blah blah. So, you know, and then I find that kind of, I mean, I'm not offended by it, but if I was indigenous, I'd be offended by it. It's like, oh, you're using me as an accessory or my ancestry. But, but when you look at really the values of a lot of those cultures, uh, it's hard not to be kind of, you know just awestruck by a lot of the like they're just their basic values were, were beautiful like their intimacy with the land you know they the, the belief that everything was alive in some cases even rocks you know they just had this veteran this veneration for the land that they occupied and it, it's no wonder why they you know took care took, took such good care of it for so long you know i mean if everything from prescribed burns to you know agriculture to just maintaining it well for hunting to you know, they really, they were like the ultimate stewards. And not all of them, of course, there's thousands of different cultures, but many cultures of indigenous Americans seem to have that down. And, uh, you know, it seems like we could we could certainly stand to gain a lot from from studying that. You know? Yeah. Because we've been fucking, yeah, we could we've been fucking up this country and just turning it into a strip mall and a giant wildfire, you know, so. Yeah, if we could come close to a land ethic like that, we'd be, in good shape i think we'd solve our problems pretty quickly yeah. but uh yeah unfortunately it seems like the forces are tending to push us away from even you know the limited level of enlightenment that we've been able to gain to this point oh i know but i mean i have hope i have hope but uh you know i'm cautiously optimistic in my in my best moments and uh you know i try to savor those when i have them. yeah for sure for sure <laughs> i mean <laughs> i really uh times are times seem certainly very dark right now but i don't know man i i tend to despite all my outward misanthropy and 
you know, negligent sarcasm and satire and cynicism. I, I really do. I have a, a little shred of hope in me as well. And I hope that, I mean, the model's already there, you know, we just have to actually start to respect it and look at it and see how that applies to contemporary culture and civilization, you know? So. Well, what you're doing with this podcast too. I mean, I really respect that trying to get the, you know, bring the appreciation level up for the things that people see every day. But, you know, there's that green blur out there that most people have that plant blindness or lack of plant awareness. And, uh, and even for those that have plant awareness, you know, what you're doing with this podcast, I really respect because it's helping to enhance that. And, you know, that there's nothing more that, you know, that, that kind of education and build, you know, building up of the love and appreciation of nature is, you know, we can't have too much of that and you're doing it in a great way. Yeah. That's, that's, the, I really appreciate it. I just it. see stuff I love and gets me, that gets me excited and I want to get other people excited about it too. You know, and same thing for my friend, Matt, that does, in defense of plants it's that it's that same thing and you know he's a much more professional version of, <laughs> of what i do but but i just you know i see this i see this as the thing that unites all of us and i there's not a single person i know that studies plants that if you get them talking about it doesn't have an innate humility that they've found from studying these things and and learning about deep time and evolution and all these things. I mean, it, it humbles you in a way. And I think that's something that so many of us could, uh, could stand to gain. And, you know, we just, we live in this world where we're just increasingly cut off from life as it's been for, you know, hundreds of millions of years on this planet. And I think that's dangerous. That's not going to end us anywhere good. You know, it's going to leave us like that. I always say that it's going to leave us like the kid in that book, uh, the giving tree, that Shel Silverstein book, you know, he grows up and at the end of the book, he's, you know, this lonely, you know, broke old man who's just kind of sulking, you know, he's, he's taking everything. So. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There's so much beauty. There's so much beauty in, in knowledge about nature and, you know, it gives you such a deep perspective. And like you say, it's humbling. It's uh gives you respect for the, for the environment and for all living things. And I think that's, something we could all use a big dose of yeah for sure man and i want to thank you i want to thank you for coming on this podcast because you i mean you're like such a fucking you know brilliant well-known dude and you could be such an elitist prick but you're one of the nicest most down-to-earth people i've met and i thank you for responding to all my emails about this subject and taking the time you know with me to explain this stuff to me and so man i can't thank you enough bruce you are a you're a gentleman well, thanks a lot. Oh, I, I look forward to our future conversations. Joe. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. All right, Bruce, take it easy, man. Thanks again. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.